I just got a message from Jen. I need to make sure she's still alive. I got a message from Jen last night, which I turned my phone on this afternoon and saw. It says, am in tornado, taking cover in textiles. <laughs> I tried calling her and it went right to voicemail. So, um, When is she due back? To be honest, I don't know. That's Holy not shit. good. You should know when she's due back so you know when to worry. You know what? It's Jen. She's going to get taken out by an ingrown toenail. She's not going to get taken out by a tornado. No, but she'd get to go for a fun ride in one. Back to Perfect Weekly. This is Ryan. Mike. I'm Sue. I'm Tim. Sue, there was tremendous pressure on you just there to say Sue, wasn't there? I know. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sitting here, and I'm starting to think this is Mike's way of taking over the podcast one by one. <laughs> we'll just shout their names, and I, we can no do longer, and I will no longer feel welcome. Roll call, Mike, <laughs> Sue, Tim. It'll be like a um. It'll be our like, powers unite. <laughs> be just like in Viridian's fic where all the third years are like Taylor, 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 Taylor. they're all jogging around like it's <laughs> in the morning and Dumbledore's like we have a track team what the fuck? you know I, I, I actually do salute you every time I say my name right I know you do you know what I am both honored and mildly frightened you know what it's a frightening honor thank you Mike <laughs> there you go, go. alright tonight we are here to uh, both discuss the final chapters of the fiction or Andy He's, he sent me an email signed to the Andy I get to call him Andy uh, Andy's uh, Dumbledore's army in the year of darkness the final chapters and we will be sitting down with him later uh our great friend tim here is back with us this week and has informed hey. me that he's wicked schmott i'm sure tim is wicked schmott i'm referring wicked schmott he's wicked so schmott. much fun to t- so much fun to talk to even if you have trouble understanding him because he has a rather thick irish accent does he really yes. yes that is the coolest thing ever because here's the deal i'm going to ireland in four months at the time you're listening to this i'm sure i'm already married but at this point we're you know we're not <laughs> there yet. So I'm going on my honeymoon in four months and I'm going to Ireland. So I hope you don't mind. I'm sure you're listening to this episode because you want to hear the Infection speak eloquently about war and the and the, you know, these brilliant characters he's created. But basically, I'm go- just going to milk him for information on you know travel sites, um, you know tour plans, um, you know, what, what direction I should go. I'm basically going to milk him for directional information around um, Ireland and um, I, I hope you don't mind that, but basically I need to I'm going to be like Clark Griswold driving around the place, too. I'll be on the wrong side of the road. There's a car flying over hills. So if I ask him which fanny pack would be the most comfortable in the Irish terrain, that would probably bring down the level of intellectual content a little bit. <laughs> just a Maybe little. a smidgen. Just a smidgen. All right. Well, 
You know what? There you go. So why don't we jump into the discussion tonight so then we can get to that wonderful and exciting interview. Uh, starting off, um, we, we don't have a lot of um, chapters to, to cover tonight. We've, you know, it, it's like, it's small in number, but it, it packs the most punch because this is what we've been waiting for the entire fic. And yes. also because we read Deathly Hallows, we knew what was going to happen the entire fic. So, uh, you know, I love to talk about, you know, the TV show Babylon 5 and how it has the same format. You know how it ends, you don't know why. We know how this is going to end. But what impressed me the most about this, and this could either be because the canon went straight over my head and I forgot it, or it could be just how this fic is different from a lot of other um, stories I've read and heard over the years, you know, in, you know, in form. But I didn't expect it to end the way it did. I expected, just be based on, you know, history and, and how it's worked with me and other uh, stories before, I expected Andy to take... I love how I'm calling him Andy, like I have permission to call Um, You know, what uh, Andrew's done is he had a lot of outs in the story, and he had the opportunity to make it an after-school special, and he didn't. And literally what he did was he did exactly what he said he was going to do with the story. And I didn't think he would. And what I mean specifically by that is that usually in most Harry Potter fan fictions I've read, Harry thinks he's going to die. And he'll never live with Jenny, and he'll never have the kids, and he'll never own a dog, and why am I studying? I'm going to be dead in a month anyway, and he's doing his last will and testament, and he doesn't have any shit to give away. Angst, 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 angst. Angst, angst, angst. And then at some point, Harry decides to live. It's usually after he's just seen Jenny's left breast. (laughs) He decides he's going to live. I don't know why it's the left one. It's always the left one. I don't know. (laughs) He's a breast man. Apparently, he's a left breast man. So Harry decides he's going to live, and they're going to fight. And then you have Ron in uh, the final reckoning. I will live for you, Hermione. I will fight for our unborn child. And he has no spleen, but he continues to fight. And that's the direction it goes in. Now, the reason I thought that was going to happen here was it was very heavy-handed earlier in uh, the fic itself, because all you hear from the characters is we have five months to live. We have four months to live. We have three months to live. We're going to die. It's a certainty. We're going to die. Let's just live our lives out the best we can, and then we'll die. And the only point that you really don't see that happen is, Tim can tell me, at one point, I think it's Parvati, says they're having a discussion, and one character says, oh my god, you're talking about winning. And it's the first time any of the characters actually thought that they could win this fight. Mm -hmm. And who was that? Was it Parvati? I thought it was Parvati was involved in that somehow. Does anyone remember? I don't know. I think it was some other character. I don't remember off the top of my head. Anyone but Parvati. It was someone, anyone but Parvati. <laughs> but they decided they were going to live. So I, what I thought would happen at that point was the characters would be like, Taylor, 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 and they'd be fighting twice as hard, and they would, you know, because now I have something to live for. And then Susan's pregnant. I'm like, the baby must live. And he needs a mother. And, well, it's a she. She needs a mother and a father and a goat and a dog and a fence. So they they were all going to fight to stay alive. And it didn't happen that way. And it was pretty much the bloodbath we were promised from chapter two. Mm-hmm. And why that's different from what I expected was, you know, in canon, Fred dies and, and Colin dies and, and Tonks and Remus die, but pretty much everybody lives. So, it, you know, it, it, you got the sense from canon that it was almost um, not, not a minor casualty skirmish, but you got the sense that it could have been much worse, and I, I'm on record on the podcast saying I thought it would be a lot worse. I thought McGonagall would die and the school would burn down and Hermione would have a limp and Ron would be dead and she'd be limping to his grave. Like, I thought it was going to be awful. So, what I give him enormous credit for, and then I'll end my monologue here, is I thought that 
you know, everyone would decide to win and they would fight and they would, it would be like, you know, those after school specials where, you know, the Death Eaters are marching up the hill and the kids build like, you know, they have like nets in the ground and they, you know, hoist them all up in the net. And then like, you know, Dennis, because he's so short, can just like hit them all in the cat, like kick them in the calves and all the Death Eaters will fall down. And because they're kids, they will prevail. And it wasn't. And they all died. Well, here's the thing. What we see in canon, that's the infamous Harry filter. And at the time, he's pretty much, the time where he notices Colin dead, he's pretty much going up to let Voldemort kill him. And I don't know about Harry, but personally, if I had to think too much about everything that was going on, all the people that were dead, all the stuff that was happening, I just want to go curl up in a ball somewhere until it was over, because it's almost too much to take in. And this is a bit of extrapolation, but then that's half the fun of fanfic. I've talked to Andy a lot about this, and he's talked about war and reading about it. He specifically mentioned Black Hawk Down, where I believe the expression is reality is unrealistic. Like, there's the, it's the source of his, of his screen name. The truth sometimes really is stranger than fiction. You read about stuff like the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, and you wonder, you talk about a guy who gets pretty much gutted, and he lives long enough to get to the hospital, you'd be screaming at them, because you're so used to fiction where stuff like that doesn't happen. Well, I'm like, not making like, any sense. Well, no, you are. It's like 9-11. What was the thing that we all heard on 9-11? If you pitched this to any movie producer, you know, on September 10th, they would have told you it's entirely unrealistic, the four yeah. guys at Boris Cutters can... Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. I have very clear memories of that morning. I I turned on the television and saw the World Trade Center in flames and thought, oh, they're doing one of the, another one of those present the movie scenario like it's the real thing things. And then I changed the channel and it's on every channel. You know, some things are just, it hits you out of nowhere how, how harsh and how it hits you, this stuff like this. It, well, it hit really you gets because... on the reality of the situation. It feels real, and you care. And he's fleshed out these characters so thoroughly that you really you think of them as human beings, and you care about them, and you want them to, to succeed, and you want them to live and have babies and grow old. And yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. Um, because usually, when Parvati dies in a fic, who cares? She's the you know she was the date to the Yule Ball, and she was the pretty one. Um, and if, if we're talking about, you know, the final reckoning by Lavender Brown, I think Harry left her on a couch. Like, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> that was very unfortunate, but you know, it's like, who cares? It's, you know, Seamus, he's, he's, you know, the rowdy Irishman. These aren't really people calling. He's the dork with the camera. You know, they're the background people whose names we know. They're the, they're, they're the professional red shirts. When they die, we know their names. Yeah. And they don't mean anyone. And in this fic, they do mean someone. And what almost got to me, uh, reading the last chapters, uh, Gen 2 reference last week, uh, that I had sent her a message saying, I don't think I'm going to like this fic anymore. And then five seconds later, I wrote back and said, never mind, was when, uh, when Andrew killed Susan temporarily. And my <laughs> response was, okay, let me get this straight. You're going to kill Padma. And then you're going to dissolve her sister. Like, awful nope. scene where Parvati's, like, literally dissolving. dissolving. And then she finds out that her sister died, and that pushes her over the edge, and she evaporates. I mean, you know, and this is the girl that Neville was dating, you know, nine months earlier. Because you forget that the story began with her wanting to know if she could handle it, and she got herself cruciate. Yeah, and it, it hits you out of nowhere. Like, one minute, Neville's turning to... 
I think it was Mike giving him instructions, mm-hmm. and then the next minute he's like splattered all over the ground. It's like holy crap. Yeah, and Mike and Terry in that relationship that you saw the two of them, you know, like closer than best friends throughout these last chapters. And you know, I think Mike is the first to fall, and then Terry uh, later on. Neville can't tell him that Mike's gone, and then Terry's gone before long. And there's one student that got turned inside out, which was. You know, an awful thing to visualize. I hate to say it, but it reminded me of Galaxy Quest with that thing that the transporter, you know, inverted. I don't want to go there. But, you know, it was... No, he didn't. They beamed the, beam the pig up, and the pig's inside out, then it blows up. It, then it exploded. But <laughs> you have to laugh. And, and they, there was some comic relief. Like, Ernie lost three fingers, and he's, like, spitting out teeth. He's like, everything's fine, boss! And he's, like, beating the crap out of the world. Like, oh, the wellers. Like, and the thing, too, is, like, Devil charged across the field to save him, and Neville gets there, and Neville's, like, hyperventilating and dehydrated, and Ernie's like, well, we're fine, dude. Yeah, no problem. We're good here. You know, Katie Bell explodes, but you know what the thing was? It was... Like, the Parvati thing was heart-wrenching. Even the Romilda vein... Yeah. Romilda's death was... It was gruesome, and it was just sad, because... It was sad for Neville, because he was so powerless to stop it. You know, Parvati was was awful. Like, I was hoping Neville would, like, pour some bleach on her or something and save her, and then she could, like, wheel herself around for the rest of her life or whatever, but that was just so terrible. But the one that got me uh, was Susan, because you don't kill the baby. You know, you don't kill the dog. If you some like, you don't let the dog burn in the house. There has to be hope, unless it's Joe who kills Hedwig. Well, yeah, but everybody else lived except for Hedwig or Hadwig, as I once referred to her. Okay. But you know, it's you don't put everyone up here, and then you know, you don't kill everyone. But life doesn't work that way. I know, but here's the thing. In terms of a story, okay, you're going to kill Colin, and you're going to kill Dennis. And I can understand that, because their lives were ended when the Death Eaters killed their parents. But Dennis survived long enough to avenge Colin, and Colin stayed there long enough to protect his friends. And, you know, Parvati and Padma knew what they were getting into, and Terry and uh, Michael knew what they were getting into, and Ernie knew what he was getting into. They all knew this was coming. But the fact that everything's happening to these kids, and they lose their innocence. And, the, and and Andy does a great job. I'm just going to call him Andy. Screw it. You know, Andy does a great job through these chapters of showing the fact that, and this is something that when you're 17 or under, you love this argument. You know, age doesn't matter. It's maturity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 13-year-olds can't drive. I'm sorry. Ain't happening. But, with, with you know, it's not the number. And, and on some level, that's true. I mean, if, if this were really happening, these kids you know, long ago earned the right to drink at 16 because they're going through enough hell. But, you you know, the, they lost their innocence. They lost everything. And they've if they're going to be adults, damn it, they're going to be, you know, entitled to the same responsibilities and benefits of adults. And Ernie and Susan get married and they're going to have a kid. And that kid is innocent. And that kid is hope. That kid is hope and she is what they are all fighting for so that the next generation doesn't have to fight in the same way they did. It's what our grandparents did in World War two and our parents did in you know vietnam and it's what we're doing now in iraq and 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 you do something so that the world will be a little bit better so when i thought that susan died well what tim's saying is true in war awful things happen i'm like no you can't kill the baby like i just thought that was pushing it way too far because that's the only thing they're all fighting to, to keep and as soon as ernie sacrificed himself for Susan, can I just say, at one point, did he did he call Pomfrey a bitch? 
And I think he got it close. Did he? I think he called her a bitch. I seem to remember you bitch. You'll say for I don't know. But you know, Ernie, they're the picture of the scene. They're they're at the they're they've got the guns all pointed at them. They're two minutes away from the one hour being over with the option of additional hour. So they're losing their time, and they've and and, and you know life is almost over. But all he can think of is Susan's dead. And even if she was going to live for three minutes, you know, otherwise Susan's dead. And all he can think of is that's my wife and that's my baby and I'm, I'm their husband and I'm their father and, and this is the only thing I have to do in this world to save them. And he literally uses presumably, you know, ancient magic and just, you know, the, the complete power of his love for them and he does what Lily did and he sacrifices himself retroactively for them. And I was totally fine with that because he desperately wanted to die for them and he did. And the baby lives. And mm-hmm. the baby eventually takes a plant course from Neville, and that's wonderful. But at that one point, I thought the story was going too far, and I'm very, very, very glad that it didn't go over that line. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He was going for realism. It's Sometimes I think the best of these stories are just the right mix of the of what I heard someone once call the mundane and the fantastic. You have these fantastic elements, uh, these ama- people who can do these amazing things, but then you're living in uh, ostensibly a real world yeah. where, you know, kids get cut down in the prime of their youth for what seems like absolutely no reason, where things like this happen. Yeah, and like in that case, too, obviously there's no contemporary uh, you know, analogy, or there's no contemporary uh, example of you know how you can close your eyes and wish really, really hard and trade places with the person who you want to bring back to life. He essentially pushed her out of the way of the passing minivan mm-hmm. <laughs> and saved his wife, babe. I mean, that's the only way you can put it, but... And I yeah. did go and find it, and yes, he does call her a bitch. Good, okay. Because you know what? Pomfrey was really mean to Harry in a couple of fics, and she really deserved. Although She mean to Harry? Oh, in fics. I'm- Pomfrey. Well, can I just say, I've gone from saying Gran is a bitch to Gran for president. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that one. Can I just say, I think Gran totally kicked ass in this one because she's not Neville's mom and she's not even Neville's she's the person I think who's been waiting her whole life for Neville to finally be a man and now that he is the minute he became the commander of Dumbledore's army she couldn't be prouder of him she only not only could she not be more proud of him her role as his guardian ended and that's pretty clear because with Molly Weasley she can be 95 years old and she will still be, you know, 70-year-old... Oh, hang on one second. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we are going live to Gen 1 at the moment for an update on Storm Force 1 or whatever the hell we're calling Hello. Hi, Jen. Jen. How are you? Hi, Jen. Hi. All right, Jen, I'm here with Sue and Mike and Tim of Hufflepuff House. Uh, Hi. Hi, everyone. Tim is thrilled to be here. Um, Just so everyone knows, last evening at 8.01 p.m., I received the following message from Classic Gen. Message begins, am in tornado taking cover in textiles. I received the message about an hour ago, which is about 24 hours after Jen sent it. So at this point, I'm picturing, oh, God, (laughs) I was the only person she could get the help me, help me, help me message out to. And I waited 24 hours. Jen has died. So I'm very glad to hear from you. Well, 
I was waiting to hear from you, and I was like, wow, he must just not have a son on, because I know he cares if I die. <laughs> of course I do, Jen. You're in my wedding party. <laughs> I know. So I was like, well, I would laugh from him. No, this whole week has been so weird. We were supposed to go to San Antonio, uh-huh. and um, my grandma got sick, and so we could. she didn't travel too well. Whenever she goes somewhere, she has to wait a day or two and feel better, and then we move on. And so by the time they came down to Texas, they didn't feel like driving that other, you know, the extra yeah. four hours to San Antonio. So we ended up staying just here in Fort Worth for vacation. And so for us, for our family, um, vacation includes going to Ikea because we don't do that normally. <laughs> and I love Ikea, by the way. Um, but anyway, we got into this, uh, there's this big storm. Like nothing happened. There was no clouds in the sky. And then all of a sudden, um, my, uh, one of my family members has an iPhone, which I think is really cool. Can I just say the fact that Jen is referring to it like it's alien technology found 80 miles underground? It's called an iPhone. I have one of those. (laughs) This iPhone. And he discovers, because we're in the middle of Ikea, that there's a storm going on. Because we saw, you know, they have those big glass window ceiling things. And so you could look up at the sky and we saw that it was raining and like it was leaking through whatever. And so he looks it up, and suddenly all the tornado sirens go off. And this is right after my parent, my dad, and my sister stayed in Azel. And he called about 20 minutes earlier and said, we've taken cover. There's a tornado here. The sirens are going off. We're just letting you know. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, we left our dogs outside. So my dad and my sister run down to our house and get the dogs in, and it was big and dramatic. And so then, so we're stuck in Ikea, and, and they say, oh, the tornado sirens. And apparently in Ikea, they call it a code 1000 yellow or something, yellow 1000. And so they start putting it on the speakerphone. Code yellow one thousand. Now, did they tell Everyone you what that meant? Or, did they te- or is that the code for them so they would know? There's a- yeah, they never once told anyone. Well, they did by the time we all got to Texas. So anyway, that's all we hear, and we're looking at this iPhone, and like you can see all the little tornadoes catching down everywhere, and so we go, oh my gosh, and uh, okay, sorry, my sister just came in the door. Um, so they move us um. And so they they come in and they say, oh, everybody, we have to go to textiles. And so they start ushering everyone because we were at the end of the store. We were at the checkout place and we had already put my grandma's wheelchair in the car because we'd come up, you know, where you can come and load, like you come and bring the car to load. So you're fireman lifting grandma and you're running to textiles to take cover from the oncoming. I know. Well, we had already put her wheelchair (laughs) in the car. So, like, they start ushering us to textiles and I go, we need a wheelchair because in my envision, I'm looking up and I'm going, oh my gosh, if a tornado hits this building, we're going to all die because the ceiling's so heavy, it's just going to fall on us. And then my mom's like helpful. She goes, if it's an F5, it'll just pull the building out of its concrete slab. There won't be anything left. So I'm like, Mom, shut up. That's so helpful. <laughs> Here I am freaking out. Just, I have to share with you, um, Jen's mom is on the podcast once for about three minutes. Jen has told me frequently, Jen will have like a really bad pimple. And she'll be like, Ma, look at this really bad pimple. What do you think I should do? And her mother will look at it. You know, Jen, it could be cancer. Ma, it's a pimple. <laughs> That's and she'll be like, and I hurt my leg. I bumped my leg. Oh, you know, it could be cancer. <laughs> She's like, the Jen's well, mother is so, always good for making you feel a little bit worse. Yeah, my mom is the ever-practical one. Yeah. And so, Thank you, Captain anyway, Obvious. So we get to textiles, and they make this big announcement and whatever. 
And, you know, they say, well, um, the guy gets his megaphone because we're all like, get, we're in the rug section, which I don't even know what textiles means because I don't know what that word is. But we're in the rugs. And does textiles mean rugs? Anyway, I was sitting on a pile of, roll, of rugs and they were all, you know, rolled up. <laughs> And I'm holding my baby, and my mom is like, make the car, put him in the car seat. If the ceiling falls, that'll be the safest place for him. Hold on, what? freaking out. Yeah. If the <laughs> ceiling falls on your kid, he'll be protected in his car seat? He'll be more protected in his car seat than if I was just, like, laying on top of him, smothering or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, so, so, but nothing happened, and they let us get up and leave after about half an hour. And, but we had his iPhone, and he was going, one touchdown here, and one touchdown five miles from here and another they've got another sighting and we were just going we're going to get hit by three tornadoes oh my gosh and <laughs> so anyway that so I, I thought oh my goodness only this would happen to me so that's when I, I texted Ryan yesterday but it was like six o'clock five o'clock yeah it was like, no it was seven because I remember looking at seven, seven o'clock yesterday yeah I got it yesterday. Yeah. and then promptly ignored it for 24 hours I'm like oh <laughs> I know that's what I was like well okay Tornado yourself. Tornado takes shelter in IKEA. Got it. Yeah. Unless the ceiling caves in, in which case hide in these car seats, in which case you'll be protected. Unless it's an F5, in which case you're all going to die. I trust IKEA. We were driving home, and there was like three semis turned over. So we saw where that they touched down, you know, but we didn't get hit in IKEA. But I was afraid we were. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to hear that I didn't get, like, the message. Like, I was so petrified I was going to have, like, a message. Like, I'm taking cover in IKEA, call for help. And then, like, in the message from James a day later, has anyone heard from Jen? Or be like, oh, right. Whoops. <laughs> Oh, God. So but we didn't lose power in our house, so I felt very pleased. Well, I'm glad that it was That's a pleasing good. experience for you. That was a plus, man. Every time we get a rainstorm here now, it's like we lose power. Well, here we had 400 here. tornadoes, and it thundered all night long. I've never had that experience. Usually a thunderstorm comes through, and it's like two or three hours, and it'll thunder, and it'll be you know, real rumbly. And it was until, like, 8 this morning it was still doing it. And I, we were just listening to it going, oh, my goodness. Well, Jen, just to ask the question oh. I know that we that we forgot to ask you and that everyone's wondering, did you buy anything? At Ikea? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think no, I no, I didn't. But I did buy stuff um, at the mall. We went to the Cheesecake Factory, which uh-huh. I just love. And, oh, my gosh, the macadamia caramel, white chocolate, whatever. Oh, it's to die for. Anyway, at the mall, that mall, I bought stuff. And I discovered Pottery Barn Kids, which uh-huh. I've never seen before. And, oh, my gosh, I'm in love with Dr. Seuss bathroom set. Oh, so, so look. Um, and I bought that. But, no, I didn't buy anything in Ikea. But I did see, like, a desk and stuff I wanted for Lee eventually. But he's uh-huh. not there yet. Well, no, he's very small. Now, um, <laughs> did you did you find any rugs that you liked in the rug department? Or? Okay, the rugs are held up by eggshell crate things, Uh and when we sat down on them, the eggshell crate broke, and all the rolls rolled off, and the power (laughs) went out, and like, so we're... So we're, <laughs> we're sitting on this thing, and I've got my baby in the car seat, and we're all just going, oh, no, the ceiling's going to fall on us. And then the bottom, what we're sitting on, rolled out from under us, and we all fall on our butts, and, and it's a big chaos, and everybody screamed. And then so, it, so you're saying that the Ikea carpeting just brought back too many bad memories, and you just couldn't go there? Well, that's right. Okay. So, well, it was nice of them to let you take cover under their substandard carpet 
So IKEA is just nice. They're just nice people there running those. I know, and they were also nice. You know, nobody ever helps you anywhere, but until you're in a tornado and you're screaming, "My grandma needs a wheelchair now!" and then everybody's like, "Get down, get down!" and it's awesome. I love it. So anyway, I am so nervous to have you at my wedding. I'm gonna just say the truth. I am so afraid that whatever whatever curse was put on you at a young age is gonna follow you to New Hampshire. Don't be nervous about the actual ceremony. See, it'll work well. Jen will distract you from, like, you know, like, wedding, wedding jitter nerves. You'll no, be- I'm sure when she gets attacked by the grizzly bear uh- on the lawn, <laughs> it's going to impact her. Well, I've got to fit into this dress. So I have been, like, drinking water and taking diet pills. I'm, like, walking 100 miles to Nike every day. And but you know you get to pick the size of the dress, though, right? Well, I'm going to the Cheesecake Factory. That doesn't make sense. Okay, well, I, yeah, that was the, I admit, I am <laughs> and, and that was not a shining moment, but that was just a small lapse after, I won't return there until after the wedding. And so, <laughs> so I'm trying to get down so that this dress won't be like, you know, I'll have to like push myself into it. It's not going to work out. Anyway, um, so I've just been walking, 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 walking. And, uh, but today I like, I walked and walked into a fire ant pile and my foot is swollen. I had to put uh, nicotine and ammonia and everything else on it today. It's awful. Can I point out, I have known her so long that when she says she put nicotine and ammonia on it, it doesn't even make me blink. I discovered a new store, though. Damn moon. What do they sell? Does anybody know what that is? It's like purses and luggage and hair stuff and jewelry. No. And it's cheap. And so I got a toenail, I got a toe ring, and it's one of those, like, plastic toenail, I keep saying toenail ring, that's gross, toe ring. (laughs) And I, like, squeezed it on my toe, and it was so pretty. I went around, and I started noticing that my purse, I couldn't, like, move my foot anymore. And I was like, what's going on? It cut off the circulation in my middle toe. And so I took it off, and I had a ring indention in my toe for, like, 36 hours. You almost lost your middle toe. I did, because it was this little green flower, and it was so cute. Oh, my gosh. And it was one of those things, like, beauty is pain, and I was just like, oh, I can still walk around, because what, you know, worth it, a toe or your middle toe looking really awesome with the ring. And so, nah, not so much. So I took pictures. I'll put it on Facebook of the cute flower, not of oh no, of your gangrene and black toe. Okay. <laughs> so y'all can all appreciate because I got my toes, my toes done, and there's a little green flower on my big toe, and it matched the little jewelry toe, and it was so cute. Oh my gosh! Well, just everyone in case, I'll get a cane out for you, so when you walk down the aisle at the wedding, you can you know have some support. That'll be good. Yay. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm so sorry to bug y'all's call, about y'all's uh, podcast. I called Ryan, and I totally forgot it was Thursday. Oh, no problem. I thought you were dead. I was going to get at Ikea, you know? (laughs) I was afraid, afraid, you know, the ceiling fell on your head. So it was was nice to hear from you. We always love to hear from you, Jen. You know what the thing is, though? In the beginning, I would be very worried if anyone else had sent me that message. But because it's Jen, she's kind of like Captain Kirk. You just figure she (laughs) won't die. I like that analogy. Except the one time that he did. She could be like we Captain Xavier. That. You mean when he was fat and died? Well, yeah, but they brought him back. The new one is so that's much a, hotter. It's a new timeline. The old one is old. William Shatner, yes, he is, he is old. And he, he got too old, man. Well, don't I like the William Shatner? God. Man doesn't shut up. He monologues 24-7. You know what would be funny? <laughs> familiar? Jen. No, not at all. I like the monologue. <laughs> I would love to see Jen cast as the Professor Xavier character. All right, Mike. Write it down. Picard. But I'm not bald. 
of cards. We can shave your head for the Hold on, you want me to shave your head into a Pat Gray Stewart impression? <laughs> it would be very funny. This I'm not see. British. I'm Texan. Although Picard's French. Jen, no, we he's have British. S- Haven't you heard him talk? He doesn't say we His character is British. British His character is actually French and he has a British accent. <laughs> Whatever. He is British. They are just stupid. And I got a free shoulder massage from a real masseuse today. I was I was just like, oh. afterwards it was lovely. I decided I need one of those every hour of every day. I just need to hire a personal <laughs> masseuse to walk around with me. When things happen, he just give me a shoulder rub for a minute, and I'll be good as gold. <laughs> there you go. Very cool. But anyway, I, y'all just y'all probably have things to do, you know, that are talking to me. And so y'all go on and do your stuff, and I'll talk to y'all soon. Talk to you soon, Jen. Bye, Jen. Bye, Jen. Bye. Okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad she's not dead. I enjoy her company a great deal. So, uh, just to move on, um, uh, the thing with Gran <laughs> is that I almost get the sense that, you know, for example, Molly Weasley, you know, at age 95 will still be, you know, a mother to her 70-year-old kids, and she will still treat them like little children because she is eternally a mother. You know what? The thing with Gran, though, is it was a t- I-, I get the sense through the way Andrew wrote her is that it was a temp job. She raised Neville. She was disappointed in him a great deal of the time. And now that he has come into his own and he is the commander of Dumbledore's army, she is done raising him. He doesn't need her in that way anymore, which works into a lot of the stuff that um, is told here as, um, you know, Neville admits that he's never been taken care of before because Gran's never really done that. And it's a role that really Hannah steps into. But she almost behaves, you know, towards him later in the story as though she is a companion, as though she is an equal, as though she is, you know, a supporter. Um, and a friend. And a friend. She she doesn't come across as his guardian. She refers to, like, can you imagine Molly calling Bill commander? You know, she, she he has made it. And, and that is the source, I think, of her pride. The fact that she is no longer needed. I don't think she cares about that fact. I don't think she identifies herself as, you know, a guardian, whereas Neville really does identify himself as the commander. And I think that, I think it's just a really fresh way of showing that relationship. And I think it does work for those two. I, I, I just, I thought that was one of my favorite parts of that relationship. I just... I loved seeing her proud of him, which is something you don't really ever get to see. So I thought that was great. I really enjoyed the, their relationship with something. I, I know I've mentioned it before. It's one of one of my more favorite parts of the fic, just how they interact. Mm-hmm. But I do want to disagree. I don't think she was ever disappointed in him. I think you're right when you're saying that. I don't think she was ever – Neville actually says at one point in the fic she was never a mother to him and she never tried to become his mother. And – uh, I don't think she was ever really his grandmother and how we think of grandmothers either. I think all along she viewed him and tried to treat him as more of like a friend or an acquaintance or someone on her level. And it, I, I honestly don't think – I don't get the vibe from her that there was like sort of this like disappointment in Neville all along. I think she was just waiting for him to become what she always thought he could become. But I think that's different from when you say she's disappointed in, t- in him. It makes me think almost like that's not a then that crosses a line from a good relationship to a bad relationship. Disappointed that he's not being who he is. Disappointed that he's denying himself. I mean, you saw it earlier when he left the ministry, you know, moments from being, you know, beheaded, you know, and losing the head that he so desperately needed. Uh, you know, he, he goes to Gran at uh, the aunt and uncle's house, and the first thing Gran do is walk over and smack him, because she is disappointed in him that he led, 
you know, presumably Death Eaters there and um, put them on Jeopardy. And even look back in, um, what's that scene in the beginning of Half-Blood Prince, or even McGonagall has to remind uh, Neville that, um, you know, Augusta Longbottom was pretty bad in some classes herself. I mean, I have no <laughs> idea where he's going with that. Move on. Yeah, anyway, so that's my take on Gran. I just thought she was fantastic. And anyone else have? Yeah. Go? Comments I was going to make. First is on to what we were talking about way back at the start of the podcast about, you know, the suicide. Like, you're like, now they think they actually have a chance to win. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that this is why I don't blame Zachary Smith. Because, like you said, they were all planning to, you know, they, they didn't think they had any chance of success really until that point. That was just one side point. The main thing I wanted to get into, though, and I'm curious if anyone else felt this way. To me, the most enjoyable part of the whole fic, and I know it's a weird, maybe it's a weird thing to be, thinks is so enjoyable, was the interaction of Neville viewing Harry. And oh, I kind of got like, like I got not annoyed as in like it's bad writing, but like annoyed as like, how dare you Neville, like I'm talking to the character, uh, when, when he's sort of like his reaction to Harry. Because his reaction to Harry is almost like, you know, like Harry doesn't fit, I guess, how he's built him up into his mind and how he expects Harry to no, be. Does. No, and I, does. And I, and I guess having and what I love about the, the, this part of the fic is having read Deathly Hallows and knowing everything Harry's going through and knowing all of that. And then I turn around and like Neville and all these other people are kind of like, my God, Harry's, uh, you know, he's a loser here. He doesn't know what he's doing. He hasn't suffered as much as he. His face is all innocent. And I'm like, don't you talk to Harry that way? Well, to be honest, I wanted to smack Harry upside the head a few times over the course of Deathly Hallows. I mean, and also there's the fact that. Well, Harry never really measures up to what the image anybody, everybody builds up of him. That's well, almost his shtick. He exceeds the image in some ways. He does not. I mean, you could argue that Harry's actually better than the image of him that the Wizarding World has. They still seem to be disappointed in the in what they actually get out of him versus what they want of him. Well, everyone invests their hopes into Harry, and there's this sense that when there's one thing standing between you and the end of your life and the end of your world, you invest a great deal of hope into that. So if it doesn't seem like it's going to be able to save you, and if it doesn't live up to the hope you're pouring into it, it's human nature to react with anger. So, you know, Harry will save us. We, we must do all of this for Harry. And, you know, all of a sudden Harry comes back and he's riding by the seat of his pants. Is he worth, you know, all of the of the sweat and the tears and the blood that we're pouring into this situation if he doesn't even have a game plan? And just to say one thing, too, I'm, everyone here is on the same side. But, I, you know, I've read this type of story before. I'll, I'll, I'll hit up. Balasar Galactica again. You know, there's several episodes where um, the human race is essentially divided in half. There's there's half of the human race were um, essentially, uh, you know, in this in the same type of situations you see here, where they're conquered and they are, you know, resisting and they are dying and they are, you know, being forced into horrible situations because they don't have freedom. And then there's the other half of the people who are they're tasked with rescuing the first half. And it's difficult for them, yes, but they're all well-fed and they have their freedom and they're able to, you know, plan, you know, they're they're maneuvering at their own pace and everything. And there's resentment after it's all over and done with because, you know, to the people who were in the trenches, these other guys don't know what we went through. And those other guys are like, well, we saved your asses. So, you know, you should be, you know, thanking us for what we did and risking our lives to save you. So when you look at it here, no one has gone through what Dumbledore's army has gone through in this last year, ever. Harry was, you know, tortured, you know, on the gravestone for about 
10 minutes and you know he underwent the crucio curse and he fought at, at, at the um, department of um, mysteries to be fair he was in constant pain from his scars he was in constant not, pain but not, like, I'm harry to, was, like constant torture through like all of year seven i don't think harry had i know i know harry went through mental torture for seven years and everyone at that school and arguably for 10 years before that right and everyone at, at this school has gone through physical torture it's a type of combat and it's a type of anguish mental and physical that no one else has had to deal with and what people desperately cling to is recognition they want to be recognized for what they've done and for how they've improved and while it's not explicitly stated within the chapters there's a sense you know when harry returns that now he's in charge of the organization and there's a sense throughout the chapters that's all coming apart you you see neville desperately build up Dumbledore's army, and you know what it means to him. Number, you know, for him personally and for him selfishly, he defines himself as the head of Dumbledore's army, as the commander. That's his persona. And when he's meeting with McGonagall and Arthur, and he insists that the younger students be able to fight, and he's basically swatted down without even, a, you know, a blink. You know, it, it isn't even a question. And he reacts emotionally. They tell him if there, if there's another tantrum like this, you know, you won't even fight. So they're reducing him to a you know a, a crying five year old who's having a temper tantrum because he doesn't get dinner early, or he doesn't get dessert before dinner. You know what I mean? It, he is essentially everything he's done doesn't mean a thing to these people. Which is yeah. all the more jarring coming from McGonagall because she's seen mo- most of at least most of it. Yeah. Right. Well, and the flip side is though, but then Neville turns around and sort of does puts same thing on Harry. Or he's not, or when he meets this Harry, um, you know, he's not appreciative of everything Harry's been doing and everything Harry's gone through because he's measuring Harry by his own standards, just like uh, Minerva's measuring Neville by his standards. And I thought it was kind of interesting that it's sort of like this pass along thing they're doing there. It's somewhat justified. They they've all figured they've all been ready for this battle pretty much all year, and Harry comes in. Ah, forget. No, 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 no. I don't need you guys. I got to do this myself, and it's. I'd be pissed off too. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the parts is that um, is when he's finally arrived and he's having his scar is he's reacting to his scar pain and Neville all of a sudden thinks, Oh no, did we just invite Voldemort into our midst? Yeah. And there's a look that passes between him and I believe it's Seamus and Seamus kind of walks around behind Harry and he is ready to snap Harry's neck. If this is truly a possessed Harry that's possessed of Voldemort, that's it. He's gone. They've based all of their hopes on him walking through that door, and he walks through the door, and within minutes, they're ready to kill him. And that's amazing right there. Well, I shouldn't say that's amazing, but that's wonderful from a plot perspective, because they're wrong. But it's good that they're actually thinking of something, and they're putting together their own plans. And even though it's wrong, it doesn't come across as weak writing. That, you know, It's all too simple. It's just they guessed, and they're wrong. And I think that's a very healthy thing from the story. I think that's a sign of actually stronger writing, because too many authors assume that the characters know what the reader knows. Right. right, And they have, it's like, all right, he knows this because he read ahead a bit. No, it's like they don't know this because they don't. They weren't there because Dumbledore is, well, unreasonably tight-lipped, let's face yeah. it. 
Yeah, and nobody knows anything about anybody what anybody else is going through. But then again, that's arguably the human condition. Nobody understands anybody. All right, and that's one. Of, that's the theme of this sort of is that to me that Neville doesn't understand what Harry's gone through, just like Harry doesn't understand what Neville went through. Yeah, they asked Ron how long Harry's been such an ass for. And Ron, and yeah, and Ron almost like rips his head off. Yeah, and it's a fair question. You know, it's a fair question. Seamus makes a comment in one of the earlier chapters that this is you know Andy speaking as the audience as well. This is Seamus's chance to actually mean something because he's not just the red shirt in the background. He's not just the fourth roommate. You know, this is his chance to actually do something out of the shadow of Ron and, and Harry and Hermione. And, you know, how must it feel to be everyone else and all these fix that Harry is always the default leader where these people have fought just as hard? And you know what? There is something personal about it and there is something selfish about it that you have, you define yourself and, and you have put in, you know, the effort into creating this army and you, you define yourself by, you know, the leadership role you have in it. So all of a sudden, you know, Ron gets back and he can just, you know, stand behind Harry blindly in their eyes and he can just, you know, Harry's in charge, will do what Harry says. And that's not what the fic really was about. And that's not what canon was really about. And that's just what the the angle I latched onto it with because I care so much about the characters. But I thought that was a really great moment where it's like, what do we do with Harry now? Who who are we? Is Harry in charge? Am I in charge? Uh, Anyone in charge? McGonagall? You're obviously not in charge. I mean, like, I don't know if any of you read Orson Scott Card, but I may have made this comparison before. But this is like, if Deathly Hallows is Ender's game, this thick as Ender's Shadow. It's the same story, just with another storyteller you know, that's that went on in Deathly Hallows, and there's a lot of Deathly Hallows that we didn't see going beyond the scenes that we see in this story. That's so actually an amazing so- parallel, Tim, because you're right, because Bean's just like Neville with the whole, even even down to the fact that he's the backup plan for Ender. That's an amazing uh, analogy right there, I have to say, Tim. Now that you said it, I'm not going to be able to get that out of my head because it's so perfect. I would recommend Ender's Game to anyone. It's a young adult book. And I would say actually before Harry Potter, it was probably the preeminent young adult book in the country. Um, great book. But what I was going to say is, I guess, to me, what, why I think the writing in this chapter is so strong is because you get sort of this double action. On the one hand, one of the purposes of the fic, I guess, is to show how Harry sort of didn't recognize and didn't appreciate the undercurrents that were going on in Hogwarts while he was gone. You know, like his, like, just kind of like, like, I know when I read it in canon, I didn't think any of his. I was, he's kind of like stunned surprise at Dumbledore's army. I was kind of like stunned with Harry. And now you read this and suddenly you can be like, oh my God, Harry, how can you be so dismissive of them? And then you get the flip side of that too, because you see that in a lot of ways, Nivel and, you know, Dumbledore's army are just like Harry is in canon in that they have no way to appreciate or understand all the hardships Harry has gone through. And so us with knowing what Harry's gone through in book seven, we then read this and we kind of have almost the same reaction Neville has in the book, I think. Well, the thing that Neville has happened to him so many times in the story is that he tries so hard and he puts in thousands of hours and, you know, know, training for every contingency and transforming a bunch of students into a fighting military force. But within seconds, like five times, it almost unravels. He gets captured in Nocturnelli and that's it. You know, he gets dragon pox. They could attack now and I can't stop them. You know, McGonagall tells me to shut up and sit down in the corner. 
all of those plans are out the window because there's little, inc- you know, things that can happen in the change in, in the in the fraction of a second. All of a sudden, adjust every plan that we've made. And what it shows is that Neville, for all the planning that you can do over time, you can't anticipate Harry Potter walking through the door. That's military doctrine 101. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Exactly. It's never going to happen, and, and, and that's that. And what we're left with, and this is something that I didn't really anticipate, and I, I do enjoy how they do it, and I do enjoy how, you know, when Harry leaves the room, you know, the, the conversations that go on in the background, and I do appreciate how Andy expands Deathly Hallows and makes it canon in his eyes and makes it, you know, realistic that, that all the stuff happened in the book, but we just never saw it. And what he does is he changes the framework to where, you know, the Order of the Phoenix is essentially destroyed, and Dumbledore's army by the end of the story is essentially wiped out, and there's very few survivors. From Deathly Hallows, we get the sense, because of the people who survived, that it was a pretty, you know, light skirmish, and, and they, everyone was incredibly lucky. Here, we find that the people that we just happened to know survived were, you know, the exception to the rule. And right. it was pretty much the bloodbath that we were promised the whole time, like I said earlier. So... It- the different curses and stuff that he came up with, the different ways that people died was just amazing. Just We touched on it earlier with people that were melting, people that were turned inside out. It's the difference between shooting to incapacitate and shooting to kill in as hor- horrible and gruesome a matter as possible. The thing is, the Death Eaters enjoy hurting people. It's how mm-hmm. they get their jollies. and. This is kind of showing that. I think it's a better manner than a lot of stories do it, because a lot of stories just have them as, you know, stereotypical crazies or stereotypical, you know, mooks. But it kind of gets out there over the course of the story. These are people who enjoy inflicting pain and suffering on other people. Yeah, and they do it very well. Yeah, I think that's what he was trying to get across. One thing I didn't really like was um, usually when you see stories like this, like the story is an exception because it's supposed to be like the uh, the other side of the canon coin. But usually what you'll see is, you know, Fix or Neville, you know, becomes, you know, you know, the incredibly brave, you know, warrior, so on and so forth. He becomes the hero and he takes the hero's tail and he will be the one to defeat Voldemort. And he will be the one to do all these things. And he essentially, you know, supplants Harry. What I did enjoy here was he had a very different goal than Harry and they, they share that meeting on the, on the, on the, on the lawn when Harry knows he's about to die and tells Neville, I need you to take out the snake. And, and, and Neville's like, that's when Neville starts to get the idea that maybe Harry does have a master plan after all, thank God. And especially when Harry reveals himself at the end to be alive. And he, when Harry's charging into battle and Neville's charging into battle, Neville doesn't go after Voldemort. Neville's job is to protect the injured from being wiped out by the werewolves. And I really loved that because it's a complete, it's a support role. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, he's protecting his people. You know, Harry will deal with the battle. The others will deal with the Death Eaters. I'm, I'm playing defense here because these people need me. And I just thought that was a great moment because I could easily have seen it going the other way and Neville would be charging in alongside Harry just out of eye shot so Harry can't see him. And he would, you know what I mean? It, it, mm-hmm. that, he had a different role there. And I thought it was great that that was acknowledged that he had a different role there. It's not just this, but the can as well. I really enjoy the Neville story arc because he has a very clear character arc. I've noticed something about the canon. Sometimes the characters in the background almost have more complete character arcs than Harry does. Ron and Hermione definitely have their arc in the background. We see a little bit more of Ron, too, in this. A little more of his sort of his thought process and his personality than we do in Deathly Hallows. 
Yeah, and I like that. Yeah, the the one moment that touched me with Ron was when he opens up to Neville that he left and he mm-hmm. couldn't do it, and he and, and he came back, and that's the I mean that's the story with Ron is that I've said this before. He had two different ways his character could go. He could fulfill the journey that began in Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, as the you know the tactician who will sacrifice himself for Harry, or he could be the jerk in Goblet of the Fire who blows up, does something stupid, and then comes around again. And he went the second route. And Neville didn't. Neville saved the world because everyone was wiped out. If Neville hadn't had that army ready, no, no one would have made it until the reinforcements arrived. In all fairness to Ron, he had that horcrux around yeah. his neck for months and months. And we know from Chamber of Secrets that having one of those close by has an effect on you. Heck, you could mm-hmm. argue that you know, from we know from Order of the Phoenix, Harry had Voldemort's soul in his head. Mm-hmm. That would certainly have an effect on someone. I think it had an effect on him, but I still think it was him. Ron's own internal conflicts, which were arguably left over from Goblet of Fire. He's a bit insecure about his place with Harry and Hermione. He wonders if they need him. He wonders if they'd be better off without him. And the Horcrux whispers into his ear exactly what Ron's telling himself already. I will say I loved when Ron almost, I think, was it, was it, was it Seamus? And he, Ron almost punched out in this fic. I'm like, go, Ron. Well, Seamus knocked him out about five times earlier. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and when they're, it's after the battle, and Neville has gone up to Dumbledore's office to talk to the painting because he wants answers. And Ron and Neville are talking, and, and Ron says that, I know you came to, to see if maybe there's something that can be done to bring back the dead. And that was the last thing on Neville's mind. He he, he was coming for you know for answers to the questions and it just kind of threw him for a minute and then it's he was like wow you know I didn't really think of that yeah well, and, never would have been brought up with with magic he would have known that there is no way to magically bring someone back from the dead that's like an elemental rule right but so is Ron and Ron well, so is not being able to sacrifice yourself for someone who's already died and Ernie seemed to have yeah, Ernie I, think, that I don't know if well. she was she was only mostly dead there was a faint pulse somewhere along the, the way so it was the last week he was saying they were afraid that Ron was like uh, not Ron that Neville was in the cut her stomach open and try to save the baby I'm like thank god nice little characterization moments in here apparently Terry parses spells when he gets drunk, sits down mm-hmm. and starts picking them apart really intently, incendio, incendius, incendior, incendiate, incendiavis, things like that. Well, All he, right, is, I'm just, he is he's the quintessential Ravenclaw, which is definitely cool, which is usually a good thing, because in most fics I've read, he's just boring as all hell. So mm-hmm. it was uh, in the scene where he runs into Neville and on the on the grounds, their last scene together, there, he, he was actually reminding me a little bit of Glenna. I'm like, wow, he's really cryptic from someone else's point of view. <laughs> He's like, I must go. You must kill the snake. What's kill Harry? the snake. I, I cannot discuss it. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, because that'd be... I give everybody panic attacks, right? Exactly. And I really love the sense of foreboding with the, you have one hour deadline coming up. Um, they have three minutes to live, and Ernie's just begging for someone to work on Susan and save her life, even if it's only for three minutes. I just, I thought the whole thing was... Yeah, he was yeah. ready to start punching people. They Yeah, because they were getting ready just to barricade themselves in and, and die at that point. And then Neville has a sword of Gryffindor, and he's going after Grey back with it, and Ron comes to his assistance. And the whole thing was, it came across very well. And I love the fact that when the hat was on Neville's head, he saw Dumbledore, and Dumbledore gave him the sword. Just little moments mm-hmm. like that. Because we don't know what the hell's going on in there. The thing's on fire. He has third-degree burns. And 
Well, it, the it protection was, from Harry, how Harry self-sacrificed himself, and then there was the protection on everybody after that. Exactly. Right. So the hat probably didn't burn him that badly. Oh, when Joe said the 50 people died in the battle, I don't think she was taking into account the 80 Death Eaters who were killed by plants. <laughs> you know, you have to give Neville credit for that one. That was a great idea. He took out, like, an entire battalion. It's hysterical. Well, it's finally good to have some payoffs for the Mandrakes. Yeah, you know, and they wanted to party anyhow, so. Trelawney, too. Trelawney has her crowning moment of awesome. (laughs) Yeah, did that actually happen in the canon? Yes, it it did. did. She was throwing crystal balls. No, I know she was, but wasn't P.S. saying that Lavender didn't go down the stairs with the Greyback, because that's what she thought the first time? I don't even know what we're talking about. Well, fine. Greyback and Lavender go over the banister together or go over the little balcony together. Well, I know that Hermione rescues Lavender at some point from Greyback. Well, in this canon itself, they don't confirm a lot of the survivors, like Parvati and Padma. I'm not sure if she's confirmed them. She's right. confirmed. She's confirmed like Luna and the big and in the, in the, in the big major players. But and Cho, who dies in this fic. What did she? What did Cho say about Cho, uh, about Cho? She went on to marry a muggle. But as far as it, I talked to Andy about this, he says. That as far that as the canon goes, all that counts as canon to him is, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive to All Was Well. That's the canon to him, the seven books. And what she said afterwards. Yeah, I can I can see that. The thing is, Joe, I was about to say Joe changed her mind about the interviews, but she also changed her mind about the canon, too. So, you know, what? sometimes. By the way, am I the only one who loved that, like, ten times in these chapters? Neville keeps going. But of course, Harry would know about that because Luna would have told him. It's like Luna told Harry absolutely nothing. Nothing. <laughs> he was so pissed. He's like, "Are you?" Because he wasn't inclined to listen to her anyway. I guess. Yeah. Well, she'd even yeah. try to tell my kid. But it's like every time they go somewhere, it's like, "What's this tunnel here doing?" Neville thinks so. Like, didn't Luna tell Harry about? The well, I can't wait to really find out what um, Andy thought of Deathly Hallows after Ron's line. I don't know. It's kind of boring. We camped. We searched. He's not really big on the camp out of doom. I think what Ron said was it was long periods of boring with like short periods of like fighting for their lives. I gave the novels to a friend of mine and she read uh, I forget which one she was on. I think she was on Order. She's like a hundred pages from the end. She's like nothing's really happened yet. I'm like yeah, it picks up. Just picks once, up. I'd almost like it's to time. see a fic that points this out that every problem is is ends up solved or close to before the year is over. I just you know, I've read go read a Game of Thrones. You'll have I've that. read one. I don't remember the name of it, but there's one where um, Harry's preparing for the final battle which will come in May and Dumbledore says to him what do you mean when it comes in May well I know it's it's almost here how do you know that I just feel it plus it always happens in May P.S. <laughs> was talking about that in one of the podcasts I, I don't I, know I, that it was necessarily a fic that you guys had read but I've just heard it when I was doing something for one of the finales did the Psychic Serpent trilogy remind you of Camping Trip of Doom there Sue? no towards uh, the end of the second one. Oh, maybe you know, that, that's been a while <laughs> and then we obviously have the ending as well just to comment on too where Neville is just a really good teacher and I will tell the true story about what happened uh. here to anyone who just does well in class and is able to pass and he's able to look at Ms. McMillan and know that they made it and that everything mm-hmm. worked out okay it just it, you know there was it was and just to talk about my, my thoughts on the whole story it was a story that made me believe in the characters because usually when we talk about fix like, I, like I'll have comments that the story seemed, you know, seventy-five percent real and twenty-five percent fantasy. The story didn't take itself 
entirely seriously or the characters didn't seem like themselves. They seem like people with the same names, but different personality traits. And there's always something I'll, I'll complain about effect where, it, you know, or like, um, a creative quill, you know, I thought that there were just points where it, people don't talk like this. It just, it just seemed really out there. This story felt so real and it felt so meaningful and the characters were so alive and, even little things like Neville being, you know, per, like the selfish reaction of Neville when he loses control over Dumbledore's army to Gran and the friendship she offers Neville to seeing how dangerous the battle actually was to see how much in this universe they really did lose. Dennis Creevy, when his brother is killed by Lestrange, Dennis essentially, ta- you know, he takes the Avada Kedavra, you know, with the Death Eater, but he makes sure that Death Eater goes down with it himself. Oh, yeah. And it's so tragic because he's a kid that hasn't spoken since his parents died, but he did it for his brother, and that means something. And and the sacrifices everyone else... You know what? I've heard, had people say in the last week they had trouble with this fic because it was just so violent and dark at the end, but it's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's about the fact that everyone in that room you know, knew how hard it would be, but they knew it was worth it. And the thing with Zachariah Smith that we were talking about earlier was it's fine not to be brave. It's fine to be like, I, I can't think of his name, Terrence, the, the Slytherin who died, who, you know, he hated muggles and mudbloods and, and muggle-borns, but he was willing to fight because Voldemort was just plain nuts. I'm thinking of... Dumbledore's line in the Philosopher's Stone, it takes a great deal of courage to stand up to your enemies, but it takes even more to stand up to your friends. Mm, That's what I'm reminded of when I think about Rennie, you know? And you know what? He agreed. It's one of those things where he agreed on principle, but not in action. So it was even harder. And I liked that. I liked that he wasn't the Slytherin who believed that all Slytherins had lost their way, and yada, 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 and whatever Star Trek analogy you want to make here. They he was someone who actually agreed with them, but he disagreed on, on their current leadership. He thought Voldemort was, was a Cretan and, and was absolutely nuts. But, you know, when you look at the story as a whole, it just, t- it takes itself so realistically. It makes sense yeah. on a certain level. Yeah. You could argue that a lot of people have gone to war for what you could call the right to be wrong, the right to have other opi- opinions, the right to think differently. Yeah. And, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have died for that right. And you could argue that that was Rennie's motivation. I want to be able to promote my views, but I'm more likely to be able to do so in a world where Tommy Boy is six feet under. It's Andy, too, and, and what he says in the beginning of the story with Augusta Longbottom leading the fight to have the expulsion of, you know, essentially, um, I can't remember, I think it was the Muggleborns and the Half-Bloods or whoever, to have, you know, a pure, a pure blood wizarding society put into place. Augusta Longbottom led the fight to let that conversation happen, because if you shut something down, people fight for it and, and yeah. the underdog. And that's really how it happens. Yeah, it's like Malcolm points, and Malcolm Braddock points out. Insurgencies tend to have the advantage, historically right. speaking. And that's essentially it. It's that you don't make something go away by restricting it, because we all know that's what happens. Like, for example, um, we're recording this the day after there was a shooting at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial. And very tragically, a, a security guard gave his life in that incident. But I've always been a believer that whether you're, you know, a crazy white supremacist or whether you're someone from that truly disgusting church in Kansas or, you know, wherever you are, I think hateful people need to be able to speak. 
because I think when the state, number one, defines what's hateful, we're all in trouble. But number two, agreed. you can't let people forget that there are still people out there who believe that. And even though someone lost their life yesterday, which is, which is, you know, incredibly tragic, you know, I wish it worked out differently. And I wish, you know, the guy was able to protest. You know what I mean? I know I understand he's a crazy guy and he's a domestic terrorist and all that, but you need to have people who believe awful things be able to say it because like I said, it's just so important that we understand that those you know, those feelings and those thoughts are still out there. And I love the fact that Augusta Longbottom believed the same thing, and hopefully Andy maybe believes the same thing. And you can have a situation where you can kick the crap out of Lucius Malfoy when everyone's allowed to vote on it. So mm-hmm. I thought that was one of the themes of the story, and if it is, it's it's a great one, because it's not very popular of a opinion sometimes, but I think it's definitely you know, the very right one. And... um I have the sequel of this on my iPod. I plan to listen to it tomorrow. Um, I'll give you a bit of a warning. Year of Darkness, it's not significantly darker than the canon. The sequel is. It's not a kid's story. It's going to be right up a lot of people's alleys, because this story does a lot of does one thing I don't think enough fan fiction does. It makes you think. It makes well, you it, think about things like history, philosophy. Um, power. Power, yeah. revenge death, what growing up means. And it doesn't beat you over the head with violence, and it doesn't go down the easiest possible directions. It literally, it it holds its punches all the way through the end, and that's a very good thing. And the story ends essentially with, you know, Seamus coming apart, and just the anger at Dumbledore for why did you have to do it this way? We could have prevented so much. And that's true. So much could have been prevented at a hundred different points in this series if the characters mm-hmm. acted a little bit differently. You know, if Harry hadn't spared, you know, Peter Pettigrew, what would have happened? Go down the line. Would have every, you know, a million decisions every day and, and what led us to where we are now. But um, the story ends with them surviving and there's huge price tags to surviving, but yeah. they do anyway. And they fought and when they were told they can't fight, they fought anyway and they snuck back into the school and they fought hand to hand and they gave their lives for each other. And I think that's... You know, I'm nearing the end, I think, of my journey in Harry Potter fan fiction because I've, I've received so much from it. And, um, as I go through some of these, you know, stories, some of them for the last time, some of them, you know, just take a little bit of a break. You know, these stories are fun, the stories which give you different worlds to play in and different takes on the characters and, and you know, great escape. The story just gets it right. This is what war mm-hmm. is like. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's something to be said for. I'm really glad he didn't kill the kid or else I would have had to come over there. Yeah. I thought that, you know, just, the descriptions, all of the descriptions throughout the whole, the, in the fighting, was just, it was horrible. My notes say um, great, or maybe I should say awful imagery throughout the whole battle scene, because he took the time to really describe the different things that, w- that Neville was seeing, the, you know, we had already talked about the melting, people melting, and people turned inside out and everything, and just Neville's reaction to that, because these are his friends. These are people that he, these were family. They weren't even friends anymore. Dumbledore's army had become family and he had to turn that off during the battle or he wasn't going to be able to get through it. 
And yeah. so as all of these people are dying around him, he's not feeling it because he can't. And, you know, you know that if it's affecting him and you know that that later it's going to just tear him apart. But in order for him to be able to continue, he has to just not even think about it. And I just the, the descriptions and the imagery throughout these last chapters were just really awesome. They were horrible, but they yeah, were awesome. I was going to say it was so <laughs> awful, but it was so sad. But you know what it was, too? We like I liked Terry. I liked Michael. I thought they were hysterical characters. When when I realized in passing that Terry died, you felt that. Like I said before, the most shocking was Parvati because you're not used to seeing someone dissolve before you, you know, as you're sitting oh, yeah. there talking to them. And it's it was just so unbelievably sad. And I can believe in my head this is how Deathly Hallows actually happens because <laughs> there's no way to prove it didn't because it certainly fits. And if it had happened this way, I would have been a lot more sad at the end because this is like the storyline in, you know, Nightmare of Futures Past or Backward with Purpose that so many people died. This is why people go back in time to save them. Right. Like, you know, we've had storylines where it's been better than this, and they still went back to save people. But, you know, the, the, it, it definitely um, squeaks the, the casualty list a little bit. And part of that was because you got to know the characters so much better. Oh, yeah. yeah. But still, yeah, it, it was really – you fell for them. My, uh, my notes, Colin, when Colin comes back – and the curses start flying. And I just love the line where he's talking to McGonagall and inner space between every other word is he's a curse that people. he's throwing at somebody. He's shooting people. He's yeah. Shooting people. And then to have him die right there, that, that was just heartbreaking. Or the scene where everyone marches back into the Great Hall, each person carrying someone who had fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you McGonagall carrying Trelawney, who she always hated. <laughs> this yeah. is probably the first fic that made me really like the Creevies as characters because it's really easy to write them wrong to go overboard and you know like Colin never grows out of being you know fanboy in a lot of stories but this you care about these characters you like characters you might not have had any particular taste for under other circumstances and it's it's really effective. I was even going to just say, too, it sounds like it's hokey writing, but, you know, Harry looks over at Colin, and all of a sudden, he's a man. When did that happen? And that's how life works. You look over at your father one day, and you're like, holy crap, when did you get old? Because <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? You keep people in your in your head, you know, in the same, under the same characterization, almost. You, you don't see people grow up sometimes until they have, and you look over at Colin, and all of a sudden, where'd that little kid go? Yeah. Same thing, it, 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 that, that part of its life. Yeah, it's just, you know what, it's... The only thing I can say, too, is, like, even, like, look at Hannah. Neville goes out, finds Hannah, and, you know, luckily she's alive. And for that one moment, you know, that's why it was so much. It's Hannah's like, oh, the war's over, we can get married. And he's like, ah, uh, no, we got, like, an hour, then we're all gonna die. And then the baby's dead. And, you know what I mean? And it's like, er- you know, Ernie lost a hand, and uh, it just... It was so much at that moment. I'm just so glad that... You got that little glimmer of hope in between 7,500 people dying or whatever. But. And another part of that was that, you know, we, you had said that they all knew that they were going to die. But Susan wasn't supposed to be there. Susan wasn't supposed to die. And to come upon her like that, that, that made it harder, too, because she was one that wasn't supposed to be there. She was supposed to be off and safe. And everybody else had pretty much said, OK, we're probably not going to make it through here. But she wasn't one of those. It's just it, it was just an incredibly good read. And I felt I felt very I felt a, a great sense of closure from it. I, I felt like I learned a lot about the characters 
And like with all good fan fiction, whenever I look back at Colin now, I will picture this Colin. Whenever I hear Ernie McMillan in the fic, I will picture this Ernie, and I won't be able to pronounce anything he says, but I will picture this Ernie. And I couldn't do it, though, because every time I saw Goyle now, I was doing the They Shook Hands thing. There was a man of action. His name <laughs> it was, Gregor was Gregory Goyle. <laughs> Pyromaniac. All right, so why don't we do final thoughts, and then we will move into our interview with Andrew. Uh, Tim, you want to start off? Well, to be honest, I wasn't sure what to expect. I th- think I found this fic off of TV tropes, of all places. And I got into it, and I, th- and I thought, all right, I'm involved in at least one other, you know, fan verse, but this is almost the canon for me. I mean, this is, I mean, I read the canon books, and I think, all right, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and it's kind of weird because, wait, that was just a fic. We don't know if that really happened, you know, things like that. And I think maybe it hits me on a different level because I'm a history and religious studies major. So I read a lot of, so I read battlefield accounts and I read accounts of, you know, the great minds and the great people over the years and I, and even just the common people. And you think, and this hits me because this reminds me of so many things and it, it hits you on a very personal level. These people become real to you. These events become real to you. This world becomes a little more real to you. The canon had always had one foot in fairy tale mode, but you almost feel like this one had, maybe has a toe in fairy tale mode, and otherwise it has both feet firmly in the real world. I think he's referring to the plants. As <laughs> just the right mix of you know, the mundane and the fantastic. It's really effective. You'd hardly know this was the first story he ever wrote. Oh, that's astounding. To me, that's yeah. absolutely astounding. Because yeah, a lot of first stories... Even, I will admit, Living with Danger, which I really enjoy, read like first stories. But this one, you'd hardly know. You'd think he'd been writing for a lifetime. And he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. Well, that's it. As long as you know what you're talking about. and you, you, he, I think he fully understands the subject matter. And since he fully understands that subject matter, it comes across very well in the characters. Sue, how about you? Well, I don't remember where I got this recommendation. It might have just been something that I got from Gen 2 because I know it was hers, but um, I read it because there was time I was in between stories and I thought, okay, I'll give this a try because it's Neville and and I'm with Jules on the Neville front and I really liked it and I was telling anybody I could get my hands on that they needed to read it because it was so good. And this, and it's been several months since I've read it. So I did go back yesterday and listen to the last five chapters for tonight again and just really brought back to me how good the writing was and just the descriptions and just even the humor and just all of it. It came together really, really well and just it made me love Neville all that much more. And I love the epilogue and the ending where he's, you know, promising them the full story if they'll just do well in class and that they've been trying to trick him. That everyone's tried to trick him since the first day he started to get the story. Was that and the only he, one who was expecting, like, randomly a kid in the third row to catch on fire during that scene and be a nice little bookend? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was waiting for you know, the venomous tentaculus to come and take it. Well, you know what would be interesting? When Neville has to teach Harry Potter's kids, that could be interesting. Because they, they could have two different, they'd have two different, I guess, I don't know, paradigms of what the war was like. I don't know. Still interesting. Thought just popped in my head. Neville deals in plants. Hopefully he can escape that one. He's a plant man. <laughs> well, and you've got a whole lot of stuff. You've pretty much got an entire verse that happens between end of chapter four and the beginning and the beginning of the epilogue. Read the sequels. I'm not kidding. 
Should I do my final thoughts? Do your final thoughts, man. Well, actually, speaking of sequels, by the way, I'm looking forward to them. I don't know quite, I don't know anything about them, but I imagine they'll be good. And I actually, I, I hope, I think I was telling this, was a Gen 2 I was talking with about this. I hope we get to see uh, Neville interact with Harry more. That's kind of what, I know you, everyone rolls their eyes at me, but that's kind of what I really want to see. Things I loved in this fic, obviously, like I just said, the different viewpoints of Harry. Uh, I really enjoyed the Grand Neville relationship. I actually, for sure, I know it's also at the, the ending chapter. The last five chapters were like my favorite chapters in the whole story. I also really enjoyed uh, Ron in this fic and sort of like a new spin on Ron. And I agree with whoever it was that said, it, you know, the story fits in very nicely with canon. It's an interesting story in that it's not an AU and it's not... Um, Sort of like a like most of the fics we read are either tend to be like AU or like romance fics or like future fics that kind of thing. Um, this is very much a unique story in terms of how it's written and what it's about. Uh, I enjoyed Neville I, more than I thought I would. I enjoyed I enjoyed this fic a lot more than I thought I did. I kind of like I, I didn't go into this thing with any particular expectations, but it's definitely very very well written. Um, and a lot of thanks to the author and to Gen Two. For picking it. So with that, why don't we jump over to our uh, interview with Andrew, uh, at which point I will ask a question that is on all of our minds, what family pack am I bringing to Ireland? <laughs> See you all in about six seconds. Bye. Good night, everybody. Bye. Hi, this is Jen, too. Before we get to Andrew's thrilling interview, some scraps from the cutting room floor. First... Mike's surprising view on spiders. It's a giant spider on my ceiling. Oh, God. No, spiders are good luck. You're not supposed to... You know that they... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You have an insect above your head, and you're as um, well as... Oh, good luck. Technically, it's an arachnid. It's an arachnid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Spiders are supposed to bring you money if you let them live in your house. Hold on. So you will let you will let the spider move in to your house, but if that were a cockroach, you would move in with me. Yes. In my other apartment, I have like five or six spiders that just live there year-round. Okay. Yeah. So if they're in a in arachnid, they can move in and bring their shit with them. <laughs> they yes. they eat other bugs. Do they eat cockroaches? I don't think so. Only if they're big enough. So. How big are they? Mike? The cockroaches? They're, they're huge. They're like no, the size that, of my... that would be the arachnids. <laughs> the arachnids. Oh, I don't know. Not too big. I mean, I don't know. They look like a spider. How big is a spider? Like uh, the joint of your finger? All right. Well, why don't we stand down from action stations here, and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. And if you know this a cockroach, Mike, I want you to scream like a small girl, okay? Oh, if you know the cockroach, you'll hear me scream, then you'll have a podcast go dead as I run out of the apartment and never come back. <laughs> Every Puff Wayne you listening to this right now is praying to God a cockroach shows up at some point. Walks through. That's what I would do. I performance now. If I see a cockroach, I'm just picking up and moving out. That's it. <laughs> Mike's going to live in his carport. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we'll keep an eye on that one, too. I swear to God, Mike, I love you dearly, but I wish a cockroach would walk by you right now. Cause you <laughs> That's use very mean. Really- Next, Mike on the dangers of drinking. I think I told you this story about the deers. Tell us the story, Mike. I, I'm pretty sure I've told it on a podcast now about the deers taking my shoe. Tell her the game. The deer took your shoe? I have not heard this. Well, okay. Basically, uh, I think I had, like, most of a bottle of vodka or something. Like, if you picture how the university is, like, different little villages of apartments. So, like, we're in this apartment all together, and one of our friends was supposed to come in and shown up. So we get the bright idea, and this is, like, February, that we're going to go walk to him and get him and bring him back. And we go outside, and then we get the, the bright idea again that we're going to uh, not take the road, but we're going to take the shortcut through the forest. All right, so you're drunk in the woods. 
This does not bode well. Yeah, uh-huh. the, and it, it's night, and there's about like two feet of snow on the ground. Because oh, the two feet of snow was helpful. Okay, so yeah. you're in the middle of a leftover blizzard. Yeah, this is about two feet in the snow. It's about like midnight, and we get the idea we're going to cut through this forest instead of taking the road. I'm one of those people. I never tie my shoes regularly. My sneakers. I just slide my feet in and out of them. Partway through this walk. I lose my shoe in the snow. It comes off because I'm like slogging through. My side come off of my shoe, which is white, and, and it's like really dark out. And I can't find my shoe then as I'm standing there in my sock. And for some reason, I get into the idea that deer stole my shoe. And so we're having like phone conversations with the people back in the apartment. And I'm going on about deer stealing my shoe. And meanwhile, I can't find my shoe. And then I lose my other shoe. And I'm just like walking around through the forest in the snow with no shoes on. I am disappointed that deer did not actually steal your shoe. Oh, <laughs> well, not, the deer didn't actually steal my shoe, but I was yeah. apparently what I, I was kept raving about how a deer was stealing my shoes, and so everyone else thought a deer stole my shoes because that's what I was yelling about. Well, as long as they hey. thought so, I guess that's all right then. But uh, that's my only—that's the only time I ever got drunk. Well, I wish I were drunk right now then. <laughs> I like the part about how you know you lost your other shoe somehow. Though I'm not going to ask how you did that. Well, just by walking because I didn't look well, at hopping probably at that point. Yeah. It was pretty bad actually. <laughs> I did ask. I'm reminding you, myself. You did ask. I most certainly asked. Next, Mike on the importance of Swedes. I'm just say if I had to pick a chain store to take refuge in in a tornado, I would pick IKEA. I think I trust the Swedes to keep me safe. You trust the Swedes to keep you safe in these sorts of situations, not like in like a war or anything. Now, do you think they're importing Swedes to run the store in question, or do you think they're hiring local people to do it? I imagine it's local people, but the materials and the you know everything in the store is either of Swedish manufacture or Swedish design. I you know I don't even know how to touch that one. Well, if Jen was taking refuge like under like an object it would be a swedish built object they might use local materials mike they're not importing the roof i know i'm thinking of the building and that they've used locals to do the building they're tearing down sweden and they're just importing everything over the building they're just sending it put it this way what country would you trust your lives to in a natural disaster ahead of sweden i i don't why would i start with sweden who would you put ahead give me a single country in this planet you put ahead of sweden why are we starting with sweden are they are they renowned for their tornado infrastructure? Oh, they're, they're just a very cooperative and friendly nation who works very well for humanitarian. Let me back up here. They're nice people, so they are best suited to protect you from a large, heavy-falling object. I would trust them to do right by me. Like an American, if the American didn't have any particular, you know, like, he didn't, I, I didn't owe him money or anything like that, I don't know how much I'd trust a random, strange American I met on the street, but I, I would feel safer in Sweden in a natural disaster. Never assume. You know what happens when you assume i hope there'd be you know plenty of nice american people but i I would want to assume and trust my life on a complete stranger i met on the streets of like the bronx you'd rather have the swedes yeah they're they're, they're pretty good you have no chance of ever meeting at all i've met plenty i know plenty of swedes one of my best friends is a swede he lives in uh some northern town up there now here they know how to make a roof I'm not even joking. Those two, not only are they going to be a couple, 
the the only screwy part is I wish I was like the Godfather for one of them, or like better yet, bo- I could I could be like the Godfather for both of them, and then I could bring them together. Like I'd invite them both to like New York on their 18th birthday or something, and like they don't know the other one's gonna be there, and they come to my house, and then I take like me and the wife, and we just like leave. So they're like in the empty house with no one but each other, and then I like lock the doors, and they're stuck together, and they wind up married, and Jen and two and kids are like, "What the hell did you do?" My I better get Jen two and kids have fallen out of touch with each other but i still know each of them even though they don't know each other and so they like totally forgotten each other because this is 20 years from now and then all of a sudden they're like you know jen e baby goes to jen and she's like i'm getting married mommy and keza's son whose name i don't actually know does the same thing to keza and she's like and they realize when they meet each other when the families meet that it's keza and jen too from 20 years ago on pfw and then they have kids and make me the godfather of those kids too sorry but let me let me get down to business now greetings pfw and pfw listeners this is your fearless leader, Mike, here. We've been doing this really awesome podcast on this really awesome fic by uh, Fan Fiction. And um, apparently, despite it being a really cool fic, our interview session at the end of this final segment of the podcast hit a few hiccups. And apparently, there was this whole like teapot tempest thing going, which I think is kind of interesting because it was all about me, even though I had no idea what was going on until like suddenly all these people were popping up and skyping me like, "Oh my God, Michael, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, Michael, do you believe what happened?" And I'm like, "What happened?" Um, but anyway, so because of that, and we were worried about you know if you listen to this episode and you listen to this interview, you're going to be panicking about all the chaos that goes on and all like you know the punches and the you know. Keza goes crazy and uh, puts on on makeup and Gen 2 is doing a dance and uh, the author of the fic, he's like backflipping people. I don't know. It gets crazy. So anyway, Ryan was like, let's explain to people how this all started and what happened and where it stems from so they have some background, they understand what's going on. And also, before before I do that, actually, let me start that over, Ryan. I do want to say it all worked out well and there's no problems now. No, that sounded bad too. Hmm. Whatever. I'm just going to dive into this. So anyway, so this is the background of what happened and sort of the history of the whole crisis we had in this interview. So, it starts off that there are fans of these best-selling novels about kids who discover that love and friendship conquer all, and they gather together to create fandom where everyone yells at each other and uses words like, quote, wank in ordinary conversation. And then years later, out of nowhere, this Irish guy who doesn't like fanny packs writes this wicked good story about Neville getting decked over the head with a potted plant by a girl with big breasts whose best friend has dark hair not red hair like Chris Columbus from Home Alone, whatever that means um, who marries him after they save the world with the heads that they need and now all of a sudden, all of these lunatics from a land called Pufwa wander onto the scene and they say we read your stuff and we're all chatty and then they record these podcasts where, the, where there's this really good looking really smart, really intelligent, really cool and witty big guy in the corner and this really super cool uh, good-looking supermodel he says Snape's a good guy because Dumbledore was good on paper and Harry was good like Dumbledore and since Snape wants Voldemort to die and Harry wants Voldemort to die and so Snape and Harry are on the same side and Harry is good so Snape is good and killing good people is bad, so then Seamus wants to kill Snape. So Seamus is bad, so that everyone who hangs out with the Irish guy 
who doesn't like fanny packs goes, Dude, what's up with this big guy? He's good-looking, and he's brilliant, but who likes Snape? Do you think the good-looking big guy is really a communist? And so they all agree they should keep an eye on him. And then people tell, and then these people tell other people about the communist's good-looking big guy. And they all tell other people, and they tell other people, and everyone's going, keep an eye on him. Keep him in the corner of your eye. Um, and then keep him in the corner of your eye sort of changes to shoot him at dawn, and then jab him with a sharp stick. Uh, and so all the people in Pufwa think that the people who hang out with the Irish guy who doesn't like fanny packs are cranky and mean to super good-looking smart communists. So the Irish guy goes to be interviewed by the king of Pufwa, Ryan, who wants to wear a fanny pack to sort things out. And everyone who hangs out with the Irish guy who hates fanny packs tells him to swear at the good-looking big communist who loves Snape, because people on Pufwa love that. Except not so much, apparently. So when the king of Pufwa, who wants to wear the fanny packs, writes a letter to the Irish guy who doesn't like fanny packs, saying that wasn't very nice. And the Irish guy feels bad about that, but misreads the letter and thinks that everyone who hangs out with him went out and painted the communist guy's house girly colors, which is a no-no, because he likes Snape, and Snape's not girly. So the Irish guy, who doesn't like fanny packs, yells at all the people who hang out with him, except they didn't do anything. And then everyone kisses and makes up, and we all go out for dinner. But what do you think of my idea with Jen and Kiss's kid? Don't you think that has promise? Like, don't you think it's, like, made to happen? I, I, was th I was thinking it could be, like, Gen 2 and Jen's kid, but that doesn't work as well as Gen 2 and Keza, because they're kind of like sisters, you know? During the recording of this author interview, it was announced that Patrick Swayze had died at age 57 on Monday, the 14th of September, 2009. Patrick Swayze didn't take crap from anybody, and neither do we. We dedicate this recording to Patrick Swayze. It's amazing, Molly. The love inside. Take it with you. Hey, Mike, it's P.S. Where are you? I thought you were supposed to be on this episode. Um, if you're not coming, let us know. Give me a call if you're okay. Talk to you later. Mike's voicemail is a lady saying that you've been redirected to the automated voice messaging system of, and then he says, Michael. <laughs> the same tone that he uses to introduce himself, introduce on, the himself on the podcast. Mike, Mike, Mike. Patrick Swayze is dead. What? Patrick Swayze is dead. Oh, we can't start podcasts with people dying. <gasps> Patrick Swayze died? Yes. Apparently just now. It was on Twitter. Well, I'm hold on. Let's, let's not... I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make sure it is real. Give me three seconds. Smart right. bitches tweeted it. I trust them. Well, we don't know if he's dead because someone that else died yesterday morning and then they found him driving down the street. Wiki says he's dead. He is... <laughs> This I, is a tragedy. I am trying to confirm it from a legitimate news outlet. All right, we've had a death in the last minute. Don't ever put baby in the corner. He can't be gone. Oh, no. He's not dead on the Herald. Oh, he actually has died. Where? His publicist has said he is dead. <laughs>
I have to feel as though this is a bad omen for the evening. <laughs> oh, my heart is broken. Patrick Swayze is gone. Oh, that's so sad. Oh. It's like I can still feel you. You think he went with the good ghosts, like from Ghost, like the good, the good light people, oh, or the bad, or, the, oh, the, or the, the, or the bad black little squiggly things came up and got him? Because that really, you know, that squicked me out when oh, I saw. Now I'm thinking of Whoopi Goldberg. I get a message from Sam. Well, with no, yeah. nothing else, he had the time of his life. Now I had the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Seems like uh, whenever anything good in my life happens, I'm just afraid I'm going to lose it. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Gen 2 with PS with Tim and with Andrew. You'll recall Andrew, he wrote the you know the damn thing, the the whole story, <laughs> the Vulture's Army, Year of Darkness, the whole thing. Now we have to just say, now it's Puffwop. And he's been nervous about doing a Puffwop podcast because he's heard about us. Who can blame him? Our, our, our terrible, terrible track record. Look at Jen. Jen was a very healthy young woman when I asked her to join the podcast. And now she, like, walks down the street and she'll, like, collapse. And I'll run back and pick her up. Jen, are you all right? I think I just got diabetes. Like, it's just, like, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. So we sat down. I sat down. And I'm like, let's start the podcast. It'll be fine. Within seconds of starting the podcast, Patrick Swayze died. <laughs> Hey, you forgot about my toilet. Wait, he's actually dead? He really died! We don't make up death stories. Patrick Swayze dropped dead as soon as we started this recording. Oh my god, Patrick Swayze has the same initials as me. (laughs) Well, not really, but... P.S., yes. Next week, episode 88, tune in. Find out P.S.'s real name. I know now, Andrew, I know you're right now ready for your big debut, but just real fast, buddy, real fast. P.S., explain to me what happened to your toilet, because I'm actually... <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I have a toilet. It's- yeah. We hope. <laughs> and it overflowed. That's and always I nasty. I was trying, trying to fix it. And it, it, it fixed itself. It did you siphon the it. toilet water with your mouth? Because Jen did that back in episode... <laughs> it, it, no, it fixed itself. It fixed itself. It flushed on its own. But it got all over me, so I had to take a shower. In between Ryan saying, are you ready? And then there's like ten minutes of silence because I was taking a shower. I usually don't ask that when P.S. is hopping into the shower. I want you to all understand me. Sure. Relationship here. But no, I, I P.S. is like, I'm having a toilet emergency. Emergency. I'm 
like, all right, back on PS for a couple minutes. I'm like, PS, are you are you ready? And she's like, I just got out of the shower. I'm like, are you showering in the toilet? Like, I was very, very so um, that's where we are now. Unfortunately, uh, people are dropping like flies. But Andrew's here, and Andrew wrote Dumbledore's Army in the Year of Darkness. Let's go talk to him. Hey, Andrew. Hello there. Yeah, and th- that's not the big damn thing. That's the tip of the iceberg that is the big damn thing. At this point, we have now crossed 250 stories, of which over 100 of them I've written. We're on our third novel. Uh, there's videos. There's over 200 pieces of artwork. That's, I guess, where Keza got obsessed with the buff young men. It It's mad now. It's <laughs> actually there now, just drooling out. I asked her to come here, and she was yeah. unable to. She's over at uh, DeviantArt, you know, slobbering over Seamus. <laughs> So let's get this straight. We've been saying in the last three, four podcasts that this is your first story. You know, yes. Zombie, you're darkness. And, we, and, yeah. and we're just shocked that this is your first story and this is the, the, the wonderful story that you've come up with. In the time it's taken us to do that, so, you know, in the time it's taken you to release Dumbledore's Army, Your Darkness, and move on, you are now an accomplished author of 200. <laughs> We're holding a convention. I, I've crossed well over a million words at this point, and there's uh, there's some twenty other authors that are have written stories in the verse as well. It's it's gotten pretty huge. Now, the one thing I want to say, and this is probably the best compliment I can offer, you've crossed over a million words. If you went through your collective works, you could probably take out maybe fifty of them. You know, ooh, I didn't need that that there. I can take the that out, and maybe you can get rid of a because at one point. We've read stories on this podcast where you can take out chapter seven and it has <laughs> on the story whatsoever. So when you Thank hear you. a million words, you're like, oh, someone likes prepositional phrases. But in your case, all the words are actually necessary and you pack in just a very dynamic universe. And- Thank you. And I, and I, just and I want really to, have to I- take that as a compliment because I don't edit. Everything yes. that I post is a first draft. I, I don't edit, I don't have a beta, I don't rewrite, everything's as it comes. Really? You don't, really? You don't edit? No. That's fantastic. Damn. I edit everything. I edit Christmas cards. You don't edit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't edit, no. Because I edit so many podcasts that when people... I have a boss, and she ums. Every other word is an um. And, um, I, um, uh, and I'm sitting there in staff meetings saying, if I were editing you, I would take out that um and that um. Oh, do you do that too? <laughs> I, I do that, that too. If, like, like if audacity was life. Yes. Here's what I would edit out. Mike would get three words out every day. <laughs> uh, edit, 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 edit. <laughs> so you don't, my life is editing. You don't edit. I've gone back two or three times when people have told me there were typos. Like, you know, missing the T on the end of thought and making it dull, which, you know, the spell checker doesn't catch. But other than correcting maybe a half dozen typos in the entire verse, I've, every word is exactly as I first wrote it. So do you outline? Like, how, what no, goes into before no. you start writing? I mean, how, how much do you plan it out before you start? Because I know. It's pretty I, much all in his head. It go, I write it in a straight line, beginning to end. I don't jump around or anything. It, and I write it all in one session. I will write it directly into... Well, I used to write it directly into fanfiction.net, and now I write it directly into LiveJournal. Wow. I'm jealous. I'm in shock about this. Like, <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm so speechless that I can't even move. I have Andrew, to, ask a question. I have, no I have some sketchbooks where I have sort of uh, half-finished sketches of images of moments, but... 
I don't have any notes. I don't have a, a journal or a notepad or anything like so that. Like pacing all in my head. All like in my pacing, head. Like pacing-wise, going through a story. So you'll end, you know, a scene with two characters, and you'll instantly, you don't think to yourself, you know, should I start up with, you know, a scene with, you know, Ernie, or should I go to a scene with, you, you just know instantly what will come next in the story. Yes. He well, says this, like it's that the, is, yeah, Part of that is because I don't head hop. All of the novels are from Neville's point of view. Yeah, I know. But what I'm saying is, you know, in terms of do you go into a scene where Neville's talking to Ernie, or do you go into a scene where maybe Neville's talking to him? You just... Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. I don't mean to be, like, a liar, but I'm like... I'm sorry, I don't... I'm. The thing is, I don't... I haven't written before this. I don't know what's... I know that most people edit, and most people have, like, outlines and journals and things, but this is the only way I've ever written... DAYD was the very first thing I ever wrote. I, I hadn't even written a short story. I, I didn't go to high school. I didn't go to any kind of school, so I never had creative writing classes or anything like that. It was the first non-fiction thing I ever wrote. And the only fi- and sorry, it was the only fiction thing I ever wrote. And the only non-fiction things I'd written were like, "I'll be back at eight or the grocery list. <laughs> I have to say this: you are so cool. I'm absolutely fascinated by this because yeah. I'm the kind of writer. I'm so sorry. I didn't go this far. I, I don't writing. know your way of doing it, which sucks. <laughs> and we'll do it the crap way, and he's apologizing <laughs> for not like learning our method. I mean, my drink is sitting on a stack of notebooks. I, well, I didn't, um, never even went to kindergarten. <laughs> I've been writing I'm, since I was 12, and I wish I was that good. <laughs> Someone think of a question to ask this poor man. Who to deal with well, right. what I want to know is when you started to write this, when you got the idea to write this incredible missing moment from year seven, did you have any idea that it was going to turn into what it is today? It was a one shot. Where this came from, where this whole mess came from is that I was in a band and uh, the guy I was in the band with decided he wanted to do some wizard rock. And he, uh, I had been writing lyrics for the band, and he asked me, you know, would you read the, the series? Would you write some lyrics? For, and I said, sure, you know. And so I, I read through it. I had been kind of meaning to and kind of avoiding it because I actually, I'm about 5'8", kind of skinny, okay, really skinny, with messy black hair, glasses, and a honest-to-God lightning-shaped scar in the center of my forehead. I had been getting shit, okay? I've been getting shit for 10 years. <laughs> I'm like, this is very familiar. I wonder if I comment. <laughs> so I had kind of avoided it, but always meant to read it. And I read through it, and I will admit I was not entirely impressed. But, you know, there it was. And I wrote some lyrics, and there was one of them that he said, you know, this is this is bordering on a bad fan fiction. It's hitting too many tropes. And I was, the hell? What's a fan, you know, fan fiction? And so we went to fanfiction.net, and we spent about an hour pissing ourselves. Just by <laughs> clicking. <laughs> um, yeah. And then we, we came across this thing that was like Hermione and Snape and Lucius and BDSM. And so the next thing, you know, we were like, Oh, you went to adult fanfiction. <laughs> oh, we did. No, we didn't. This was on this. I know now it shouldn't have been there, but it was. <laughs> and so, like, oh my God, people write. So Google, 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 sex, Harry Potter, fanfiction. Because we're just like, now it's going to get weirder. Now we can laugh harder. Go get the booze. <laughs> and that took me to the Quidditch pitch, which had right on the front page, it had a uh, a challenge, the, the rebirth challenge, you know, write something about anything on the theme of rebirth or renewal. 
and my mate, he was, you know, you haven't written before. You haven't written anything before, but you speak English. So you could really knock the shit out of anyone in this fandom. Please remember, <laughs> please remember we have only seen an hour of random link clicking on fanfiction.net. We, I know now that there are, you know, other people who speak English, but at the time... <laughs> Sturgeon's Law, 90% of anything is crap. Yeah, and, and we, we, we were thoroughly in the PS toilet. So <laughs> we had... We, we, I sat down and I thought, you know, okay, rebirth, rebirth. Uh, what about the report? Obviously, the last book I'd read was Deadly Hallows, being the last in the series. And so I said, okay, what about the reformation of Dumbledore's army? And I wrote what became uh, the first part of DAYD up until uh, the the end of really the first scene when they when Dumbledore's army is officially reborn, you know? Uh-huh. But before, before Neville and Ginny in his room. And that was about 4,000 words, and I put it up. And uh, I actually tied to win it, but I also got about 9 billion emails saying you have to continue this. And so I was like, okay. And I continued it with the next scene. And uh, that at that point, I was calling it the Dumbledore's Army Still Recruiting Series. And then within the end of the week, it became clear I was going to just have to write the whole year and that there was an audience for it. And so I finished it out, and uh, it took all together, including uh, about a week off, it took about six weeks. Five actual writing, but six weeks total. Pofuanians, show of hands, who thought he was going to say, you know, writing the whole year, it took, it took a week. Okay. I was, I did. It I took five about, weeks. Oh, it took was five to, weeks. Oh, but even five weeks, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm about to, I'm about to drop over dead. That's it, a lot of It's weeks. actually longer than know. Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what to say. Like, I like I don't even take notes of these things. And well, so like, I'm just, then, I'm, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. And people wanted more to that, so I wrote a few one shots. And about a month later, I started Slap. I was, you know, now DIYD went faster because I was uh, out of a job and out of a home at that time. I was writing at the public library. I was living out of my car, but then. I, about a month into SLA, I got a, I got a job, so things have slowed way down since, because that's, you know, 40 hours a week plus. <laughs> yeah, you kinda gotta focus on that. And I'm, I'm behind. But I don't live in my car anymore, so I like- That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not on SLA yet, but I'm going to Ireland. We have to talk about fanny packs before you leave. I'm going to Ireland. No, you don't. Well, I have to carry all my touristy- Listen to me, lad. Listen to me. Alright. It- In a wallet. It, Get a bu- you're getting a bum bag because uh, a fanny pack is at best a personal act you would do with your wife. You run around <laughs> talking about your fanny pack, and they're gonna be looking at you real funny. <laughs> so I was gonna start talking. Hey, check out my fanny pack. Why don't you just get a good backpack? You know, I like a bag. I'm trying to make conversations. <laughs> oh my word! I haven't gone to Slaw yet, but I'm actually going to. My my aim is to read it on the plane. So by the time I land in Ireland, I'll be shitless. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the game when plan you, right now. When you land in Ireland, you will get you'll get off the plane. You will go directly to the ticket counter. You will buy another ticket. <laughs> 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 Like I'm hiding behind Danielle, who's like five foot six. I'll just like hold her in front of me. <laughs> you will hide behind Danielle, and you'll see. You'll say, "I'm sorry, honey, I have to go." Oh. Well, the thing was, 
I knew I knew it was about Seamus, and I knew you know it, it was about Seamus goes dark. You know, like I knew that was the general, very very general theme, and Neville has to go after Seamus. And I read that I read the, the the synopsis or the or the teaser or the you know or the synopsis of. And I remember saying on the podcast, it was like the coolest thing I've ever read in my life. Is like, yeah, it is. It's the coolest thing that, that I've ever read in my life as far as fan goes. But on the other hand, this story would break. Poofwa. I was really excited. Then he's, he puts up the YouTube uh, you know, preview with all of his artwork. And I sat on the couch and I like wet myself watching it. Like, oh my god, this is awesome! Just imagine NC seventeen rated fanfic for violence. Yep, 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 yep. For yep, violence, yep. for violence. Yep, yep. I've, I've never read NC seventeen for, for violence. We giggle when we for, when someone okay says for breath, situational so. for situational violence, and you know, in adult situations, the IRA guns mixed with Harry Potter fanfic. And just out and out, like gushing brains. <laughs> you know, from people being slaughtered. Now, let me just ask you a question. There, there is there. There's a novel length story after that one, correct? Yes. Or was that it? Yes. Apicardus. I'm, I'm in the middle right now. Yeah, Brian. Ireland is the country that invented distilled malt alcohol. Uh-huh. We just invented the idea of distilling hard liquor from grain. And it is not, in my opinion, a surprise that we also invented quite a few other things. Famarian, Lianche, Dolachan, Argist, all kinds, Gegaranga, Thiagata, all kinds of lovely little creatures that you're going to get to meet. I don't know what he just said, but it sounded really cool. Did anyone I'm like sitting here. Like, that was just, oh, you can I'm do like, that I again. I think he's actually reading me the shopping list. He's just speak out. Okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak Poofwanian to you again. When, I, when my mom was pregnant for me, she watched The Exorcist. She went to the movie and saw The Exorcist. Were you born in the theater? No, no but Her for the next... Yeah, but for the next week, she slept with the lights on, and she wasn't, you know, able to eat or or not even slept. She was like, she wasn't able to move. She was so flipped out, freaked out, because it was, it just, it was so awful for her. She had to, I think my dad had to carry her out of the theater because she was so freaked out. And then, you know. land in Ireland in the fetal position on the plane. Yes, yes. I, and so imagine I, being that freaked out. I call and- it the infamous chapter 15 because I pride myself on the fact that I have received eight separate reviews from people who have literally, not metaphorically, gotten physically ill. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad. Okay, I've well, got to read this, this. Like, one when now. When your trilogy is released, from the whole, now is it going to be a trilogy or will there be more or is that... No, it's, it's the, the point of it is it gets us... From all the way up to where Joe left it, but see, she made a, there. It's a bit of a mess because to create a world in which Voldemort could rise and where everything could fall on the shoulders of this one seventeen-year-old boy, she had to create a society that was pretty terminally screwed. And yet, yeah. then she turns around and says, twenty years later, everything was fine. So what I'm doing is I'm taking that that interim time. And how did it, this society go from being that terminally screwed to actually workable? I don't suppose Hermione was just a really great trial lawyer. 
an actress. <laughs> well, she is actually a trial lawyer in this, but that's not enough. Did really. you just say tribal warrior? <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard tribal warrior. I don't know. Trial lawyer, solicitor. <laughs> When your trilogy is done, so you're, you're, you're done, the trilogy is on the shelf, here's my trilogy, and someone says, tell me about your trilogy, will you refer to the middle one as the, the dark one, or will you refer to the middle one as the one where it really starts getting dark before dark, see the third one? Like, how does, just so I can get a flavor of what's coming, is it... They're all very different in feel. Honestly, uh, it's almost influenced by by three separate authors. Uh, The first one was still very influenced by Rolling Style. I was trying to keep sort of the same feel, put me on twist on it. The second one, it really has uh, a lot of King's influence, Stephen King, uh, in because I really like the way that he can bring the most absolutely bizarre metaphysical shit in, uh, but it can bring the most bizarre metaphysical stuff in, and yet still it's completely believable, it's completely in our world, and I really tried to to hold that feel. Uh, Epicatus is much more like uh, Tom Clancy. It's very political, very it's almost murder, well, it is a murder mystery, but it, it's very politically centered. Cardinal of the Kremlin sort of thing. I am just so very excited at this very much. Yeah, that sounds great. Cannibalism. Yeah. You, 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 got, you, got, no you got me and Ryan hooked. And, and you, and you brought it up. I'll take the out to you yet, Ryan. And oh, you I did to tell you, but I think you just convinced PS to leave Mike. <laughs> and you brought it up for me, so I don't have to br- bring it up because I I grew up and I I loved Stephen King since I was probably eight when I was sneaking it off of my mom's bookshelf. So I noticed a lot of that sort of writing and and bringing in. It felt like I was reading something that he had written. Well, one Not- thing that I admire about King uh, is that he doesn't pull his creatures and all that out of his arse. It's like Salem's Lot. You know, he really goes back to traditional stalker vampire. Uh, doesn't make them sparkle. But... <laughs> uh, <laughs> and with, with Sla, everything in it is grounded. The stuff you see in the real world and the muggle world with the IRA... And the RHD with Belfast, you can follow my directions in Belfast, and um, and you're going down the right streets. I wouldn't recommend you go down those streets, but yes, it, it is fair enough. Set in 2003, things are better since then, but uh, that's that's all very real. The tattoos, the slogans, Kimberly Bar, all of it. The stuff you see with the Diahudo, with his creatures, with his dark army, with the Yenra, the Morrigan. That's all very real. Well, real in that that's proper Irish myth, that's proper Celtic myth. And uh, uh, the stuff in Avalon with Sir Kay. And, oh, yes. And, uh, I, and, and I'm sort of Avalon and all that. That's also real. I'm burn. big on Avalon, too. So I was really thrilled when I read that because I was like, yes, he's really done his his is King Arthur Avalon research when you did that. I was really thrilled. Anyway, go ahead. What's interesting for me, for me is because, number one, I have a lot of Ooh, Ryan. Ryan is Darth sound, Vader. Ryan, you sound like a Dalek. <laughs> I sound like a Dalek. Oh, oh, we'll back. Back. Still a Dalek. I'm still a Dalek. Hmm. Yep. Exterminate. 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 <laughs> Exterminate. 
I will remember thinking, Andrew, when I was reading this, I remember having a distinct feeling of reading it. When you finally started getting to oh, the yeah. chapters when Pennywise, <laughs> when you're starting to really figure out that Pennywise was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, the way, that's the way that I felt when I was started getting into the meat of Slaw, is that I was just so freaking creeped out that I, but just like with it, I'm such an avid reader and I was such a lover of King. It didn't matter how freaking creeped out I was. I was just going to keep flipping the pages, even though I was totally disgusted and I wasn't sure I could read another word. I was still going to keep going. That really, really made me feel that same way. And that's why I was thinking, I'm like, this is very King-like, you know. Hopefully you- the Diablo door would make Voldemort crack himself. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still a Dalek, but very little makes Voldemort. No, you sound fine sound, now. Your Voldemort was was scary, but usually, as I often joke, Voldemort wears fluffy pink pajamas because he is rarely scary in most of the canon work. Um, the Voldemort does not wear pajamas. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Now, here's one question I have actually for Gen 2, because as I said, I have not read Slaw yet. I will be you know, reading it on my honeymoon. The one question I have for Gen 2 is, you know, when, when you're judging Slaw, compare it to Grandma from um, Coven of Echoes. Slaw makes Grandma look like... Complete the sentence. Slaw makes Grandma look like... Old Mother Hubbard. Oh, you're good. Okay, I'm ready for this. Now, I, I, there's one question I want to ask, and usually this is our lame question that we start off every interview with that usually gives us some, you know, focus. Now, you've listened to everything that we've recorded. You've listened to all the prior episodes, and you've listened to the first half of episode 87, which um, accompanies this episode. Usually, when people listen to us talk about their stuff, they are literally banging both fists against the keyboard, <laughs> screaming, you morons, it's on page six or some variation thereof. You should have seen the chat room. Oh, I've heard about the chat room. Michael, Terry, Terry, Michael, I've heard. Now, what were you screaming at us, or what would you like to address on air now that you didn't get the chance to address so far? Uh, A lot of creative expletives directed at he who is not here. Mike will be joining us hopefully at some point this evening. Mike is... And I shall withhold my commentary on that until later. Hello and welcome to the editing room. This is Kaza. I'd just like to step in here and say that at this point there was a dead silence from the hosting team because nobody knew quite what to say to that. The hosting team had already spent several minutes earlier in the evening defending Mike. So we will leave the line open for Mike should he return. He's afraid of me. Mike has no earthly... Like, Mike records the podcasts. He doesn't pay attention to any of the feedback from them. He just records the next one. He has, like, no idea there's even... No, he doesn't even... He doesn't even ever listen to them. I asked him the other day, I said, have you listened to... I don't even remember which one it was. Like, have you listened to, you know, hypothetically, 81? He's like... No, I was on 81. I don't need to listen to it. He has no idea there is a lynch mob for him at Dadeverse.com. <laughs> I said, Mike, you have to listen to it. 
oh, I know which one it was, the popcorn episode. I'm like, you actually have to listen to it because, you know, Brian really <laughs> ran me through the gutter in that one. It was kind of funny. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, what did he do? And and I explained to him, and then, you know, of course he didn't get it. Well, Brian, you know, you got to, t- you got to talk to Mike. I mean, how old is he and he has problems getting a basic boob joke? <laughs> In order to explain Mike's more unusual tendencies, they explained a previous peon cast to Andrew. Ten surefire ways to cure the common cold. Yes. Theory is that Harry, I think, had a, com- had a cold or whatever, so they're going through the, the top ten ways of curing it. Number ten, you know, one to ten. Number ten being sex. And they said, well, let's just skip to number 10. And that's how the story ended. Mike could not figure it out because you had to go in chronological. It's single entendre only with that man. And yet he can bend himself around like a Chinese contortionist to try and make, you know, a, a loving and heroic event out of Snape chopping up kittens for dinner. He's actually really smart. Sometimes I'll talk to him and I'll think, oh my God, he's actually the smartest one in the room. We've been misjudging him all this time because we think he's like, you know, the simple guy in the room, the very innocent guy, and he just doesn't get the big plop. But then there's times I'm like, he's actually smarter than I am or any of us, and he is so brilliant. We just can't grasp what it is that he's saying. But then... He'll, like, literally not know what salt is. He's never seen cows. <laughs> so then you have to reconsider <laughs> the entire damn theory that you just yeah. came up with. Savant. Mike is a savant. <laughs> and we love him. Sue right now, she just writes to me, I love Mike. And I wrote back, there's a lot of that going around. Why? Her response, episode 88. True to form, Ryan used a Star Trek analogy to explain what we're about here at Puffa. And to move the conversation away from Mike, because he wasn't there to defend himself. But Andrew just brought it back to Mike. And that's when they threw me into the line of fire. Really, we are like the Starship Enterprise, and we go to different planets every week. And on every planet, everyone wears, like, you know, the alien outfit where all the aliens wear the same thing to cut down the costuming. And you go there, and they have, like, different laws, and different things are important. It's like, you don't quite fit in, and you're not sure what the rules are, and then you leave at the end of the week, and you go to a different planet. That's kind of like us. And we've had some very strange experiences in some of the <laughs> communities, like, over there. But I have to say, Andrew was the only person who's like, I will be your ambassador. I will go in and translate for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, they, I... They were lighting the pitchforks and sharpening the torches for Mike. They, they were, and they are, and I don't recommend he shows his face on that. I was sending, I sent a message yeah. to Keza. I'm like, Keza, I think you blew up Andrew's community. She's like, what did I do? I'm like, you said something horrible, horrible on the podcast. <laughs> She's like, Ryan, I edited the podcast. I listened to it 50 times. What did I, what did I do? What did I say? I'm like, you called Michael Terry. <laughs> like, really? yeah. yeah, yeah. See, there is, there is a, they call it on TV tropes an ensemble dark horse. Mm-hmm. Mike and Terry have developed their own, like, fan cults. I there wish are, they, I yeah, but see, you like them. Voluntary. You like them. There are people who would like give a kidney. <laughs> well, I have to ask, and I, and I mean no disrespect when I say this. Keza got one of their names wrong. You killed them both. <laughs> Should <laughs> yeah, you but, not be more hated than we are? <laughs> so, yeah, so, but, many, but so many, so many buff young men. <laughs> <laughs> I'm God. <laughs> but like any of us, I was happy to take a hit for Mike because it wasn't nice to say unkind things about Mike when he wasn't there. But I honestly think that they wanted Mike to show just so that they could have a fight, because Tim brought popcorn 
for that very purpose. Sorry, we were talking about looking forward to, you know, Andrew and Mike squaring off, so I knew I had to have popcorn. At this point, I can't help but think that they're just there to pick on Mike. I guess we'll see what happens if Mike makes it onto the podcast. Because Mike allow my house and things to bring off with, yes. Oh, well, you know, he may not show. He may not show, so why don't you jump into it? At least how about the popcorn? Well, well may- maybe we can give you a good dose of, of Mike philosophy. And it really takes somebody that has podcasted and lived with Mike, you know, in a medium like this for quite a while to start to understand and um, appreciate his level of... Crazy? No, not crazy. No, no. Crazy. No, he his analytical sense is different and it you almost have to appreciate it for for what it is because you, I would never think of some of the stuff that he does. And you just it is what it is and so he frequently gets to the same place that you do, but he like drives through the woods to get there. And, and you know what I mean? Like he he he's, he drives the wrong way down the highway, but he still ends up at the same place. And I I, I wish you guys that next week in episode eighty eight, Michael astound you by chapter six of the Psychic Serpent trilogy. He's figured out the whole damn thing, and you just have to listen to, to what he comes up with. Now, I challenge Mike to figure out who's the killer in Apocatus. He'll he'll guess you, but he'll have a very good reason why you did it. That's Do I have to mention Alisa again? Alita could have been a Death Eater. We don't know. She could have been a Death Eater. But I, I guess that Pansy... Come on. I guess that Pansy Parkinson was a garden gnome. Yeah, I mean, I don't even make guesses because I know I'll be wrong. Mike has the courage to make guesses, and I love him for it. And he's 80% of the way there, and then he veers into a lake. That's usually his thing. But that first 80%, and then he veers into a lake. And the, and the other thing is that he has very strong opinions of the people that, that he likes. No and... Kidding. Oh, come on now, Tim. You know, everybody has the people that, that they care about in the in the fandom. And yeah, I mean, look at me. Yeah, Tim, I mean, yeah. To be, like, you really didn't like Linus. I mean, you wrote episode notes for Linus one, which I couldn't use because your opinion was so, like, loud on it. I mean, some people have. Very- you know, everybody it has... It was a everybody Snape ha- Hermione fic. Enough said. Well, yeah, but the, there are there's some a people whole like that. But there's a whole there's a whole like you have to be respectful of the fact that people Yeah, there's a whole section forget. there's a whole huge section of the fandom that thinks, you know, Snape Hermione makes the world go around. So we have to respect that. When you start so. reading a fic, you're agreeing with the author to let them take you down a story, down some directions to give you a point of view or point of views if they if they choose to go back and forth between different characters, and it is frust. You're you're giving them the drivers the wheel. You're letting them steer. You're agreeing to go for the ride. Now it is your right, of course, at any time to hit the back button to close the screen, to close the book, to get out. But you are letting them drive, and it felt like very often. Mike was more concerned with being a backseat driver and determining that it would go in directions that pleased his take of the characters than he was with actually being interested in the story itself and the trip itself. And I think that's also, too, because as a host, having to read it, if it's something that doesn't suit you or or something that, that you may not technically start to read and then think that it's not for you because we, re- because we read it and commit to reading it, you know, 
to give our opinions. There's plenty of things I'd have hit the back button on, like you said, that if I didn't have to read it in my role as a host here. So I think that what he does is that, you know, even if he doesn't like it, I think that he genuinely thinks about things from an analytical view and he thinks about talking points and things to bring up so that it, it makes discussion happen. Oh, and he sometimes he didn't he didn't dislike it. He did not like it. I know when he I don't think he did. Something. I mean, I don't think he didn't like it. Uh, it was it was just frustrating sometimes some of the contortions that he went through trying to that make. Is the way, that is the snake. way he looks at everything. And that is just, and that's what I'm saying, that is just something that you have to spend some time getting to know Mike because I might have said the first same thing when I'd known Mike for two or three or five months, and now I think it's the most lovely, adorable thing about him. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just frustration, you know. If, if, if Seamus is irredeemable because he was willing to kill someone who tried to murder his friend and commander, then... Why is Snape redeemable when he was equally willing to see James and Harry die? For for a woman who had rejected him. Yeah, on some level, too, some of it, I think, is theater. On some level, too, it's you are a podcast host and you are entertaining people. And in that position, you would expect everyone to, you know, read that scene and think, oh, my God, this is, you know, this is the burden Seamus is taking on himself. And this is what the impact on the canon is of that decision, you know, assuming... Oh, yeah, hell yes, it's morally gray. Yeah, so yes, you, it's you morally. get in there and you look at that, and 99% of the people who read that are going to have a very similar reaction. You know, it's tragic. You know, look, I think Ren at the time had said, look what uh, you will have, you know, Seamus now absorbed, he will have that... He's going to cross a whole lot more as a poster child for PTSD. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> taking, it's literally taking something out of him to do this, and... It adds also another, you know, layer to the story. You read through canon, and you thought you knew why Snape died. Now, here comes this guy named Andrew, and look what he added to it. So now you're wondering, you know, what's the fact that... It opens questions about fate. It's the Oedipal question. Would Snape have died already, and Seamus' action was irrelevant? Was he confirming and solidifying fate? What, what was... or did he cause it? I thought it was a pretty interesting twist myself. I mean, I really enjoyed that twist. I mean, I was—I didn't get to be on any of the episodes, so I'm saying that now. But I enjoyed the twist. And yeah, it's one of those things about fan fiction. It's the road not traveled. Now you get. Like, to I, I love—I love being able to say "ooh" like that because I mean, the one he betrayed was Voldemort. So. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh. And usually, okay. what we'll have is we'll have you know the the five hosts who are perfectly in lock sync on that one, and then we have the other host who thinks, "I can't believe he did that to poor Snape," and that's just the difference of opinion that you get. So hmm. sometimes you have to you have to have difference of opinion sometimes, or else you have a podcast where five people say, "Oh, that's wonderful," and you move on, and there's nothing to talk about. I think that Snape felt that he was justified in everything he did with that, including trying to behead the DA, so to speak, by killing. Neville, because it is in the name of keeping the peace. If they wanted to, they could stop the rebellion at any time. And as long as there's a rebellion in the school, then the school is not safe. The school is not in danger. I think he could have justified himself perfectly well that he was carrying out Dumbledore's actions by attempting to crush the rebellion as hard as possible. And if that meant that Neville Longbottom has to go then that's Neville's choice. That's Neville's own fault who brought it down upon his own head. And let's just not consider the fact that he already 
loathes and despises Neville because it should have been the Longbottoms of the Potters. So that's interesting because that was one of the questions we had in the first one. How hard did right. Snake really try? So in your mind, Snake was absolutely full throw going towards annihilating Dumbledore's army as a way to keep the peace. And the further it went in rebellion, every day that he had to, you know, write in to the boss and say, nope, still in rebellion, still not king, meant that every day that that there was further rebellion was another day that Snape was, his position was in jeopardy. You want to pick up Mike, because he just yeah, got Mike home. is available, I see <laughs> Hey, Mike, you there? Mike! Mikey, Mikey, Mike! Hello! This is actually good. I can use this for the next time Gen 2 has popcorn. I can use the sound effects. Mike? (laughs) (laughs) I got popcorn. Anybody want some? (laughs) While we're waiting around, do you want to hear the uh, hooker story? Oh, yeah, please. I want to hear the hooker story. I don't know what the hooker story is, but I I managed to to somehow, Gen 2, somehow I managed to get a hotel room in Portsmouth in October. I don't know how I did it, who I had to bribe. I finally managed to book one, so yes, give me that. You have the confirmation number? I do, and I turned down the romantic getaway package because I refused to pay $80 for a box of chocolates. Carry on, what do you got? Are you going to buy the chocolates and take them with you? I don't know if I'm going to buy the chocolates because she's, she's like a package reader, so she'll read all the ingredients and she'll find something in the chocolate. Oh, for God's sake, just buy the chocolates and put them in a separate box. What's your story? I'm going to try to make this as short as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Andrew, but we've had a, a little thing here, and, and I just, you know, I've got to tell to, tell it to Ryan in person because it just isn't really a, a type out it's okay. story. Okay, well, this is Pufwa, so it, it happens like this. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I'm married for 15 years, right? And my husband did this not wanting, you know, to waste money at a hotel room because a few weeks before our wedding, I was cleaning our apartment and kind of flipped out and had to go to the hospital. And the doctor said, hey, you're stressed. Go home and not be stressed. Well, but that doctor was stupid because what we found out about a week and a half before my wedding was that my gallbladder was failing. And so four days before my wedding, I had gallbladder surgery. When we got married, they had to wrap me up in gauze before they put me in my gown and and float me up on Percodan so that I could walk down the aisle. (laughs) So I remember very little of that day. So my husband did not think that I was going to make it to Chicago where we were driving for that night thinking that he was going to stop somewhere because I was not going to be able to ride that far. So he canceled our hotel reservations for our wedding night. Well, what happened was I fell asleep in the car and he drove by every single hotel that he could have until somehow he made it into Southtown Chicago into the hood at midnight. This is not going to end. I really have never been more terrified, I don't think. I said, just find a hotel. I I don't care what kind of hotel it is. It just has to have a name that I recognize. At this point, I I wasn't even discerning. I just, I wanted to be somewhere. I was hurting. I was in a bad mood. I had bird seeds stuck in my hair. I just wanted to be out of the car. So he stops at like some handy Andy place at the corner of some badly lit corner and goes in. And at which point, I am turning my wedding band around on my finger because there are people, like, going around our car looking in the window. And he's going in, and he's talking to this guy, like, behind the glass inside the gas station thing. The guy directs us to an hourly hotel down the road where the, there's a communal bathroom for prostitutes. Because he thinks that, because he thinks I'm a whore. 
I feel so bad. <laughs> well, because you know, I had on the makeup and my hair was all up. You know, I, you know, I did kind of fit the bill a little bit. He didn't see the outfit I had on, but you know, I, I was kind of doing it up. You know. That's such a timely story for episode eighty-four. I wish we had this available. Now. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yeah, well, fifteen years later, you still are married to this man. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Tell me about it. And and basically, we we ended up all the way up on the North Shore. We got so lost, we ended up all the way up on the North Shore. It was nearly three o'clock in the morning before we got to some place. We paid five times the amount for a room that we should have, and I barely made the you know last call at the bar and when we we got there i went down and i I just couldn't even hardly look at him and i just said i'm going to the bar right now and i knocked back a few drinks and 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 my wedding night was was just like the most stressful night of my life and then we also found out a day and a half later that on that very same night his twin brother totaled our car driving it home from the church you're making me a little stressed I guess the worse the wedding goes, the happier the marriage. Apparently, if you're still making popcorn. Yeah. Because yeah. we, found, we found out well, while we were going through all there was this no stuff. popcorn his, that evening. You can tell yeah, his, his brother had put a very nice head imprint into the windshield <laughs> of the car and was spending the night in the, you know, in the hospital. And so when we called home to say, hey, you know, we're here, they're like, hi, how are you? Nice to hear from you. How is everything going? And then his mom started bawling, and we had to come home. That was never a good sign. Shinshu, I thought of you because I went to see my, my new friends. Just got married. They bought the house, had us down to see their house. And we're looking over their backyard, and we're looking. We look down, and their backyard's on an incline, so like the the it go, it goes up from the back porch. So they're in like a little valley. And some stuff must have washed down, you know, in a rainstorm. So I'm looking in their backyard, and everyone's like, what's that on the ground? And everyone looks down, and I'm like, I think it's a dildo. And I walk down, and they have a giant dildo in their backyard, so I thought of you. Why, why would you think of me for the fact? I wasn't thinking of you, I was thinking of Jen, too. Hang on. <laughs> I'm now wondering if you and Andrew were actually played by the same actor, because it seems convenient that the minute we get you, Andrew goes missing. If you, if you and Andrew are the same person, Mike, why don't you do Andrew's accent for me? Yeah, Mike, can you do an accent? Hey, where's Andrew from? Ireland. I can do Irish accent You can do Ireland. Mike, you can't do Ireland. How are you going to do Ireland? Hold on, Andrew. I can do Mike Boston. Is... I'm a better Ryan than Ryan. Mike is going to show off his Irish yeah. accent. Go for it, Mike. Okay. See, I told you. Oi, you there. Oi, you there. I'm Irish, mate. Oi. <laughs> Oi. Oi. Is that Popeye? <laughs> some sticky potatoes, mate. Oi. That's Australian. You sound you sound more Australian then than when you were trying to do Australian. Yeah, for crying out loud, Mike, I can do it better than you can. Well, you're Irish, so of course you can. Oh, that was Tim. Tim, Tim is Irish. Oh, Tim. Andrew's the one that's Irish. Hello there. Hello. There's the hey, Luckily for yourself, you weren't here to hear what just happened. <laughs> what happened? Last thing I heard. Oh, they Gen- tell me what happened. <laughs> Last I heard, Gen Two was a whore. <laughs> That's not true. No, it really is, Mike. You missed a bit. <laughs> I don't believe that. All right. Now, our favorite part of the podcast <laughs> will resume. Now, we asked. Now, Mike, just to catch you up. Um, 
Andrew doesn't take notes. He just writes and publishes and hits enter. And, and that the story is what you first draft. That's what you say. Uh, we covered that. And um, Gen 2 is a horror. And it is awesome. We did that. And um, and Tim's a fanboy. We did that. And I'm not You're such a fanboy. Can I tell you, I had to edit out part... Um, just for time, I edited out the very part of episode 87, but it was it was basically Tim was so excited to have Andrew on the podcast, I almost put the turnaround music in. Um, oh, and, come on! And, oh, Tim, Tim. Things Tim says, he's so excited to be here. It's, it's Tim, oh, you're yes, coming. It's- Tim, you're coming to DadeCon. You're a fanboy. Yeah, you you were wetting yeah. yourself to be here tonight. <laughs> He's like Jerry Espenson from Boston Legal. He's doing the little hop down the hall. You know, it's like he's so excited to be here. It's, it's hysterical. And um, now I asked Andrew, and I'm like, Andrew, obviously, you know, when you listen to the podcast, there's things that you wish you could say to us, but we're not there. And so, so you know, here you are now. Tell us what you want to say. And he's like, bring me Mike. <laughs> Andrew, Mike, Mike. I don't want to put them, I have so many questions for him for today, too. I can't believe I got. I think he has a couple comments for you first, though, dude. So let's let him start. Andrew, take it away. Go for it. Two questions. What kind of what kind of of lube do you prefer, and how do you see that Snake is a sweetheart when it is written that far up on the inside of your own colon? <laughs> Mike, would you, do you require a translator? I, I do actually. <laughs> Your opinion of Snape is found with your head up your posterior RFI. Yes, Andrew did just tell Mike that his head was shoved up his own backside. I must say I'm impressed with the fact that Mike completely ignores the insult. I mean, are you telling me that you wrote Snape there to be a bad guy and not a good guy? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So wait, but how do you... But see, that seems so odd to me because most of your book seems so fitting with canon, and in canon we know... It is. Yeah. In canon, we also know that Snape is someone who will kill a child's pet, to make a point. In Snape, we know that canon is someone who would have a woman who rejected him, his entire family murdered, so that he could have her... And by the way, there is a word for having a woman when she has told you no, and that word is rape. And we know that... He is overall an exceedingly unpleasant MOFO. And uh, we know that under Voldemort's reign, every day that the students were in rebellion was a day that Severus Snape could be removed from his position. And in fact, a day that Voldemort could decide he didn't really like Snape overall and or questioned his loyalty. So it was entirely within canon and within reason for Snape to believe that any means necessary to crush that rebellion were... What about his oath to Dumbledore? His oath to Dumbledore was to protect the students. The students brought that upon themselves. And it is protecting them to keep them from Voldemort's direct supervision. So any time they wanted to, they could have stopped the rebellion. And Dumbledore himself sacrificed people when necessary, so Snape's actions to try to behead the Rebellion were perfectly in keeping with Dumbledore's own history. Well, no offense, but it's not the reading I got from Year of Darkness at all. And you are welcome to take from it any reading you want, and I am welcome to think that you are reading it uh, from a craniorectal inversion. All right, now Mike, fire up one of your questions. I was wondering if you could elaborate to your mind a little bit more on what Neville thinks of Harry by the end of the story. Ah, uh, that is good. Writing a Harry story. 
like a Harry-centric story. Harry's story's already been told. Well, not, not, not the story that's already been told, but like, you know, like a post... I have. Uh, I've written the second novel, Slaw, which involves a lot of interaction between Neville and Harry on exactly that topic. And Apicatus involves even more. And in fact, it involves an extended exploration of their parallel roles as the chosen and almost chosen one, and their various experiences during the war, and how they are going to come to terms with that, and each other, and Dumbledore as adults. What is, what is your thought on Harry, then, out of curiosity? Can you tell us a little bit about what you think of Harry? I have no particular opinion on Harry whatsoever. He's He is who he is, and, and what he is. I don't have any favorite characters, or, or less favorite characters. There are people that I think are, you know, assholes like Snape, but... <laughs> I don't have a favorite character or a less favorite character. Oh, a less favorite character than Neville for you? No, he isn't. He was just the best person to tell the story from. Excellent. That just made my evening. How do you view the, you know, the contrasting characters at that point in the storyline, Neville and Harry? I think that they were in completely different situations. That, you know, uh, Neville is getting ready to start a battle, and Harry is continuing his mission, and the two do not mesh. They're, they're not entering the situation in the same a point of view at all. So it, it that of course there's of course there's a bit of a clash, a bit of a screeching of brakes and a reshuffling of what's going on. Even his point of view, it's exactly the same. Yeah, we're getting a lot of feedback from your end. We can just leave it then. That's not a problem. Gen two, PS. Um, I think over the course of the conversation, most of mine have already been yeah, answered. Mike, do you have 73 questions correlated, ready to go? Can we get your opinion a little bit on Ron? Because I thought you were Ron, you only see him very briefly, but even just that brief sketch, I was very interested in him. I don't know if he comes into your later stories much, but I'd be a little... He does, he does. In, in fact, he gets eaten. You just see he gets <laughs> eaten? Yes, E-A-T-E-N. How could he be eaten because he's alive 19 years later, isn't he? You'll have to read through the whole thing. You have, have to read the whole damn thing. Okay. All right, all right. Now, I have a question. Did your grand, yeah. by any chance, have to take some to- sort of military starter course? She was the first woman in the aura department. Okay. Grandma's an aura. I like that. That's why she was so proud of Frank and so so hopeful toward Neville. I was also to say, start complimenting on how, like, what a tragic moment it is when that Seamus goes to uh, Ireland. Seamus. Shame. We apologize. Seamus. Seamus. Seamus Cornelius Patrick Finnegan. Yeah, when he first <laughs> escaped, I thought that was like the most tragic moment of the whole story. I was like, oh, it is. It is. It's really where he crosses an irrevocable line that takes him a long, long way toward the edge That's of the That's not why I thought it was tragic. Hold on, wait. I thought it was tragic because he cursed Snape, and you're like, you know, like, oh my god, he doesn't realize what's going on. He cursed the good guy and the hero of the story. Oh okay, my! And how is and how is Jameis being willing to condemn Snape? If unforgivable, if. Snape being willing to condemn James and Harry. Harry, by the way, being a one-year-old child, is not. I think you misunderstand Snape's central time. Answer the freaking question. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm not going to edit anymore. 
not everyone's going to see eye to eye on all things and all characters all the time, and that's what makes the world, not just the fandom go round. I had the right to stand up for my opinions about the characters in my story, but so too Mike had the right to his own opinions. And while it was well for me to disagree with him, even strongly, I got a bit carried away and gave too much voice to the infamous Irish temper. I always speak the mind, but with that comes responsibility, and tonight I'm responsible for dining in Crow. Debate is one thing, but there was no call for invective, imprecation, and insult, and for that I wish to apologise not only to Mike, but to Ryan, the other hosts, and the Poofwa listeners. I'm incredibly honoured that you not only chose to cover, but so greatly enjoyed my story. Hopefully, there will be no hard feelings, and we can all continue to coexist peacefully, not only in our communities and sub-fandoms, but in the larger fandom we all enjoy. Fan fiction, over and eight. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting! I just love this part! The peons are coming. Welcome to Peoncast, everyone, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott. I'm Lassie. I'm Lexi. And I'm Sue. Today we're going to be covering another Daedrus fic called Preclaris Murde, which is a Michael and Terry fic. They almost have their own subsection of the Daedrus fandom. This one is set during Chapter 13 of the main story, just after everyone has come back to their common rooms from escaping the fight at the support Harry Potter party. The main story itself follows the Gryffindors the rest of the way, and this is what happens when the Ravenclaws get back to the room. This starts with the Ravenclaws running back into the common room after the events at Hagrid's hut. They run in and they think they're going to have a few minutes, but they can already hear Amicus arguing furiously with the knocker, because, of course, the knocker's not going to let him in until he answers a question. I like that bit. I do, too. And I can just see him arguing with it, too. Just let me in! Yeah, Padma's looking dazed, and Lee is frozen, and they're saying, we don't have time to do anything, and Michael says, we'll give you time. Just go. Get everybody out of there. The reason Padma's looking dazed is because she's just spent several minutes controlling a whole bunch of snakes at Hagrid's Hut. If you've read Chapter 13, you will have read that bit, just in case. Very venomous snakes. So they sort of go into a whirlwind of activity. starts off with removing their Harry Potter costumes they put on for the party, and then shoving everyone else out of the common room because there's almost curfew, and technically they shouldn't all be there, but they're Ravenclaws, so they're sitting there studying, of course. Of course they are. But they get everybody else out of the common room and set themselves up as though they were just sitting there studying because they're seventh years, so they would have leeway on the curfew. Mm-hmm. And I like that they have their homework already spelled, so all they have to do is call it to them, and it automatically opens to the last place that they were. And the quills jump into the ink wells and start writing on the paper, taking self-notes, and so it looks like they've been sitting there forever. And Michael knows a spell. They stop breathing hard, and their faces aren't red anymore. And they just barely get that spell done before Amicus barrels into the common room with his wand clutched tight in his stubby fingers, beady eyes seeking hungrily for any sign of something culpably out of place. But there's nothing suspicious to be found. And they are perfectly surprised that he's first in the room because they've just been sitting there studying formula all night, of course. Of course! What else would two Ravenclaws be doing all night? There might be a surprise quiz on tinctures and underwits. <laughs> <laughs> those surprise quizzes, you know. You've got to study for yeah. those. 
And one of the things that makes Michael and Terry unique is that they were each other's partner in learning occlumency and legitimacy. And so they basically have this mind-to-mind rapport. They can just speak to each other. They're the only people they can do that with. They just exchange glances and they can have whole conversations in half a second. Right. Which is really cool, but could be really creepy, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah. There's another short fic that he wrote, I can't remember which one, where they're sitting under a tree and having one of these conversations. And I think it's Terry says, you know, we have to actually do something because Carol's going to be suspicious. We're just sitting here staring at each other for half an hour yet. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. So anyway, they decide their tactic is going to be Preclaris Murde, which is both Latin and French and translates basically to spectacular craft. (laughs) And they start heaping it on. Well, seeing as how the overall decorative theme in this portion of the castle is blue and bronze, that would indicate Ravenclaw, which would by coincidence be the house with which we are affiliated, and likewise the house most prominently reputed for that particular activity. Studying them. And then as soon as one trails off, the other picks up, and you just know that Amicus's eyes are starting to cloud over and cross because they're just out-talking him. And Mike, at this point, yeah. is sitting there looking like a fashion plate, basically. He's pretending to be the brainless pretty boy. And Terry has his glasses pushed out that goes on, like he's the kid who sits in the corner reading all the time, which partially he is, but not nearly as much as they're laying on. Mm-hmm. It's a very Fred and George kind of conversation, which I, I loved. It was just kind of like, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting how they get that bond, because you always wonder how Fred and George can basically read each other's minds that way. I think it's just they know each other so well that it's just kind of like, they know exactly what the other is thinking. Right. You have a point there. For these two, it's been much the same way. Friends with each other since they came to Hogwarts, and now they've been in the same dorm for seven years. They just always hang out with each other. And I like that Terry's line here is actually pretty close to what they were doing. He says, really, I don't get why you wouldn't believe we're up here studying. It's not like we're here drawing lightning bolts on our forehead, coming up with nasty things to say about the headmaster. We're merely assembling formulae. Yeah. Really, what they've been doing for the past half an hour has been wandering around with lightning bolts drawn on their forehead, making up nasty things about the headmaster. Yeah, well, Carol never know that. He thinks he's got something because there's parchment with code on it. It turns out to actually be old Celtic writing. A couple of other students were just sort of studying. He says, I wonder how long it'll take for the ministry codebreakers to crack this. And Terry and Michael are like, go ahead. You'll be the one that gets humiliated by this. Send it to them. See what they think. And he's like, uh, why? Then they explain that it's the Gaelic spell work. And this is where they get into the really rapid-fire conversation in this fic. They start talking about how it's good for everyone to learn second languages or third languages, or in their case, fourth or fifth languages, because then they can make new spells and do all sorts of good things for uh, the Death Eaters, of course. Of course. And they start interspersing everything they say with Latin and French and things, and he's completely confused because, of course, he knows nothing other than English. Everything they say, though they just sort of put it in as though it's completely normal conversation, is actually an insult to him. Right. I don't actually know what most of the Latin is, but the first phrase in French, for example, is, you are a potato with the brain of a cheese sandwich. (laughs) Well, in one of the figs that we read, they call him Mr. Potato Head, so this kind of fits in really well. 90% of this went over my head. He's got Latin and French, German and Greek. 
We're going to get the... So, call me. This is nothing new. This is fairly normal for Peoncast. No worries. Usually it's me. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) So, they're doing this rapid-fire thing, back and forth, back and forth, and Amicus figures out the word sandwich. And he's trying to, what are you talking about? And they said, merely stating that if you wanted to take over a country, you probably need to know how to order a sandwich first. He's just getting more and more angry with them, and he starts thrusting his wand at each of their faces and threatens to appreciate them. The sentence with the sandwich was apparently the politest thing they said. Everything else is basically swearing at him in other languages. I don't actually know what most of them are, but it's probably just as well. Yeah, we probably don't want to read yeah. those words out. So we could probably find out what they were saying from Sam. Mm-hmm. But yes, he says, no more of that frog nonsense. So Mike offers some German in case he likes that better than French. He has one word, which I did actually translate. And the meanings it gave to me for that were mud, dirt, muck, muckiness, raunchiness, ruffiness, or smut. Uh-huh. <laughs> They think highly of their teacher. They're acting completely frightened of him, which they really aren't. Well, at least they've got good acting skills. Yeah. Mike says, sorry, good griffins, which I can just imagine one of those 1950s boys novels. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, gosh. (laughs) Golly gee. (laughs) Gee willikers, Mr. Cowro. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to confuse you. It's the Hardy Boys. And then he demands to know, in Queen's English, where they've been, and he wants to know now. And Michael answers, in chairs. And he's like, in what chairs? Where? See, that's where it's difficult to answer, because there's so many different chairs. And then you get to where chairs comes from, and yeah. The metaphorical meaning of a chair, and (laughs) one of the warnings that he has at the beginning of this fic, he has warnings for language and for insufferable raven flying. I think that's coming into play now. And of course, he has no idea what they're talking about with Plato's chair, the metaphorical meaning of a chair. He thinks it's some chair somewhere else in Hogwarts. What were you doing in Plato's chair when you should have been in dormitories? Because there's curfew. Because I do not think Kara knows who Plato is. Probably not. Most likely not. He seems like a rather stupid henchman to me. But eventually he gets pushed beyond the breaking point and decides to cruciate them. They're sitting there under the Chiatus curse, and apparently they've come up with a rating system for how bad it is for the year, because they've had it so much. Yeah, and one of the things that they say is, isn't it just terrible that they've actually experienced it enough that they've had to come up with a rating system? Well, yeah, because you shouldn't ever have to experience that that much. Mm-hmm. Yes, apparently they've done so well at confusing him that he's only on a level three, who's, you know, he's usually good for level five, apparently. Yeah. Level one is when they bring in the six tiers and make them do it. It's horrible, but I love it that they're comparing it to Dante's levels of hell. <laughs> yes, this is very, very funny. Yeah. After the Crucio, Amicus decided he wasn't getting anything left. It's the next thing we know is then recovering from that. Right. And one of the things that I don't think we mentioned or I was distracted, they were still in their mind sharing when the curse hit them. And so they were able to experience what each other felt. The curse had never been meant for use on minds linked actively at the instant of impact. And that was so much better and worse all at once. The waves of pain swirling in, out, between, through, 
an unknown shoulder striking stone to bruise whose flesh deep over the point of whose bone that almost cracked sending a spasm of white sharp through their throbbing pulse of scarlet and his there his teeth came down hard on someone's lip and both mouths tasted blood that bloomed in one so they're experiencing basically a double whammy with all of this but it doesn't last long so, you idiots, are you all right? Warm hands, soft yet strong, were beneath his shoulders, pulling him into a lap that was too firm and long-limbed to be any of the witches. Rats, he thinks. <laughs> I like that. And he says, she wounds me, Terry. I thought that was a lovely bit of flummering, didn't you? Accomplish the... Ah, there was the injured shoulder. Objective, certainly. And back and forth again. Disconnected a little bit, so... They now know that it was Terry. The shoulder got injured as opposed to like. It's probably Terry's lip that's bleeding. And they explain that it wasn't a very good Cruciatus because he was too confused. I like Anthony asks if they need a good Cruciatus to go to sleep at night. And he's answered, no, actually, I think Vin's is the best for putting someone to sleep. The point that was good about it was because he was so worked up and just cruciated them in the left, he didn't push at their alibi, which wasn't all that great. Yeah. I like Anthony's line here. Never let it be said that Gryffindor has the monopoly. (laughs) (laughs) Disregard for self-preservation with style. Yes. The Ravenclaws do it with style. Of course. He says, last line, he says, yeah, I say we've got that on Sparta, which is Greek for in spades. In spades. And that is the kind Yay! Pretty much all his stories with Mike and Terry seem to feature languages somewhere, mm-hmm. as, as they happen to know five of them. Probably. Well, I would think that would be normal of Ravenclaw, especially if someone else knows that language is not anything for them to switch. I can't remember whether this was in one of that fiction's stories or someone else's, but I've read one where the way that they actually met was, I think they were on the Hogwarts Express. I don't know if it was first year or for some other reason before that, but Terry mutters something in French when someone else is being an idiot, and Michael agrees with him in the same language. Terry didn't realize anybody else knew what he was saying. Uh-huh. That makes sense that they would be drawn together over that. And because that was a relatively short fic, and because these guys are fun, we're moving on to a second Michael and Terry story, which is called either Ducere or Ducere, depending on which kind of Latin you're using, which means, apparently, to lead, leading, something like that. That makes sense. To lead or leading. It's the present active infinitive of the word for leading, so I don't know exactly what that means. And this might actually happen in some of the chapters you were listening to today instead of two weeks ago. Which, yay. If not, in the ones you listened to last week, you don't know exactly when this one happens. We just know that Terry is now the lieutenant. He's basically taken over for Luna. And something has happened, and he decides he needs a change. Yes. It starts out with him sweeping into the Ravenclaw dormitory and asking Michael to cut his hair, which has Michael completely flabbergasted. Yeah. Because Terry's hair is such a part of who he is, apparently. He's so used to him with this hair, but can't imagine why he wants to cut it. He says, cut my hair. Short as you can. Shave it if you want to. I do it myself, but I don't think I could get the severing spell even in the back. There was no hint of levity in his voice, and Michael frowned, picking up a lock of the dark blonde hair and twisting it between his fingers. But it looks good on you, Long. And, well, it's you. Suits you. And sudden makeovers aren't your thing, mate. What is the actual impetus here? 
And then we find out what happened. I enjoyed the reference to Byron. Byronic scholar. Well, we find out that at some point before this fic, he's already given up his glasses, which he's worn for years but doesn't actually need. He wore them to fit in with his Ravenclaw image more. And he's given them up so as to work with the DA. And now he's decided he needs to cut his hair. But first, it wouldn't make sense to give up your lashes because that's a weakness your enemy sees as a weakness. And it would be better to have it something you could basically go, oh, hey, that doesn't bother me. That's true. That's a good thought. I think it was more that they could be shattered or whatever, and he wouldn't be able to see through the shattered lenses or something like that. Can't you charm them unbreakable? Probably. And we'll find out yeah. about that in a minute. Yeah, that actually comes up later in this day. They haven't thought of it yet, I guess. At first, Michael thinks he just wants a touch for the military look or something, and he says nobody else in the DA has been cutting their hair. I mean, Neville's been letting it grow all year. Since that's not what this is about. Yeah. It, actually, I think it was Stephen that said that. I don't see Ginny or Ernie demanding anyone shave their head, and I don't think the okay. commanders even got his trimmed all year. And that's when Michael says, no, something's happened. I know you too well. What's gone? What changed? Yeah. And he's being locked out of the legitimacy, so he knows something's up. Yes. He figures out that something happened, and Michael realizes Terry always has to push his hair out of his eyes. He does that. That's a habitual tick with him. Somehow it must have gotten away. I missed. The confession was a guilt-ridden whisper, and Terry's eyes closed. Vicky and Jimmy were marking the third-floor corridor outside the bathroom, and I saw not coming around the corner. I had a clear shot. I could have stunned or obliviated him, and and he trails off, and basically... When he turns his head quickly, his hair ends up in his eyes, and he missed the spell. And apparently, when you shoot an obliviate at something that isn't living, it makes a huge crashing sound or a gong or something. And Amicus, who was a few corridors away, heard that and came running. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting point. I'm not sure why it would necessarily do that, but because you can't make a brick forget something, it makes sense that there would be some sort of side effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't make sense if it didn't do anything at all. Yeah. Because it has magic behind it, and it's meant to destroy, basically, your memory, so it would destroy the wall. Well, in magic or not, it's still a force. Whenever you push something, it's going to push back to some extent. Right. Mm-hmm. Pretty much any spell that they cast at each other in a duel still shoves them on whatever part it gets cast on. Mm-hmm. It turns out that what he decided to do, because he'd lost his chance to obliviate Knot and Amicus was coming, is he disillusioned the other two who were actually there doing things and took the blame himself. Right. So he, once again, is crucioed, but again he says it wasn't even a good one. But that's not the point. The point is, I haven't taken this seriously. I don't think any of us really have. So it's finally hit home to him that this really isn't a game. It's really going to be war. And they've been kind of playing it as a homework club or a dueling club. And it's finally sinking in that it's much, much more than that. And he asks the rest of them, do you understand what being an officer, because he's a lieutenant now, do you understand what that means? And Stephen says, well, you go to the meetings, you organize the reports about what we're doing, you send requests and such. And Terry says, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. You're thinking like when Mike was the Quidditch captain or something. This is about being there in the middle of a battle, having chain of command and giving orders and having them follow. And none of them have really thought of it that way before this point. 
Right. But before he gets to that, he gets cut off in the middle of the sentence and Mike gives a semi-sarcastic remark. Yeah. You have volunteer eyes for the thousandth time this week. But apparently this time it interfered with some vital neural circuit, which basically goes, yeah, you're still thinking like you're a crazy person. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't understand. This is such a drastic change for Terry because he's normally not... Well, he can be serious. He's a studious guy, but it's not the same kind of thing. Right. But Terry says to them, I've realized what the Ravenclaws are in this part. The Gryffindors are going to fight bravely. They'll lead us. They'll go into the thick of things. Ernie and the Hufflepuffs will stay in and hold the line and be there till the end. But battles are won and lost on details, and that's what Ravenclaws are good at. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, Stephen said quietly, how brave you are if your hair getting in your eyes throws off your aim. He's just starting to get it. Well, someone had to get it, eventually. Right. It is a vital point. The reason there are four houses is they all have different things to offer. Mm-hmm. So Terry sees that they're starting to get this and says, We all need ideas. Anthony, look at your glasses. And Anthony says, stick them on in impervio so they repel water and they don't shatter. Sealing your shoes up instead of using laces and giving them better traction and spells. Stephen says we should give shielding gloves to the best duelers so they can protect against things rebounding off other people's shields and such. Pad the trousers so you don't injure yourself and you have to draw. Yeah. And that's when Mike brings up following orders, which... That's the toughest thing for Ravenclaw, because they like their debate. Well, there's a time for a debate, honestly. And yes, debates are good, and yes, someone else's opinion might be better. Mm-hmm. When you're standing in the middle of a battle, you don't have time to go over every possible option. When they're trying to kill you, you have to make a decision. I think this is an interesting point of the fandom, that the canon still maintains to be a kid's book to some extent. J.K. Rowling kind of scratched the surface of what was going on back at Hogwarts, but she didn't really want to get into it, because it's a lot more intense than a lot of kid's books would ever go. And so the fandom has kind of gone, like, some have continued the kid book stuff, and others have kind of grown the books up a little more. And made it so that all this working around that she did, it cuts all that out and goes straight to the point of this was war, they were 17, they had to grow up. And it was it was hard for them, and they didn't really like it, and a lot of them kind of resisted at first, but they had to grow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this really is war. One of the things that Andrew said inspired him to start writing this is at one point in Deathly Hallows, there's a throwaway line that there were 50 dead or something like that. And that one of the things that JK isn't necessarily good at is she'll put in a detail that will help the current scene, but then she won't follow it up or contradict it later. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of going in and taking all these little bits that she gave us and going into what that would really mean. Because even if they are 17, these are still 50 kids who got killed in this battle. It's a giant battle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of stuff has to yeah. happen. War isn't easy. There's a reason why most kids stay away from war. Because it's not easy, it's not logical, and it's not easy to understand. Mm-hmm. But especially from a little kid's point of view. Right. I think that's also, I mean, like, I've heard a lot of the fans complain that the majority of Deathly Hallows is just camping. 
Our search could entail months of depressing camping, breaking into Gringotts, and drinking boatloads of pottage. <laughs> well, the medallion says that's dumb, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> because she couldn't, like, flash over to Hogwarts for a more interesting scene. It's stuff was happening that, you know, you, you don't want to, yeah, it, it, you don't want to know about what's going on because all you get to see basically at the end is Neville's scarred face. And the adults can kind of understand what's going on, that a lot of bad things have happened at Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. And the kids can just glance over that and be like, oh, Neville has scars on his face for some reason. It's so it'll look cool when he's chopping the head off the snake. <laughs> That's the whole reason. There you go. But yeah, that's one of the good things, I think, about books, is that different people can read different levels of things into it if they want to. They give you that option. But for the people who really want to get even further into realism and look at how things really would have had to be, this series is a really good one for that. That's basically his point in writing this series. These are real people. These are real situations. This is what this sort of thing would actually mean. But anyway, back to the one we're actually reading. Terry has gone through and convinced them, yes, this is what an officer means. I'm going to be your lieutenant. This means that I have to make the decisions. It's my responsibility. If I give an order, you have to follow it. He says he's going to convene a meeting. Everybody's going to get together. We'll talk about it, do the debate now, figure out what the chain of command is, and get everything organized so they're not just trying to cast fancier spells than the next guy, and they know how everything's going to work. Yeah, and I like Anthony. He starts to say, but if you're wrong, and Terry says, then it's on my head. That's what officer means. And if I mess up, then maybe it means that I have to give my life or yours. That just brings home that point that much more. This is really life and death. It's not just about thumbing their noses at the caros because they don't like them. It's that these people are willing to kill you, and you have to be ready for that. Mm-hmm. Well, even if you're just talking about them trying to outspell everyone around them, think about it. Each level of complexity you add to yourself, the longer it takes to cast, the harder it is to cast, the more power you have to put behind it, the more likely you are to get killed while you're trying to cast. Mm-hmm. That's the one advantage that the good guys using non-lethal spells have against Death Eaters so far, is that something like Stupefy is quicker to cast than Avada Kedavra. If you're planning to cast something that's ancient Greek and takes three sentences, you could be killed before you finish the syllables. Mm-hmm. So Terry does his big, strong speech, and they're all shocked, and they say, right, we're going to do that, and he goes into the bathroom of the mic, and collapses. Yeah. He's not used to that from him either. <laughs> no, it's not his normal. He says, Terry, that was, you were, and then they switch to the legitimacy, and he says, I don't know if it breaks my heart or if it makes me in awe of you to see you stand up under what you've realized you're carrying. I don't think I could. And Terry looks at him. Terry doesn't look at him. His eyes are closed and his breathing is hitched. And he says, you're going to have to. You're my second in command. And if something happens to me, and Michael thinks, I'd die. And he says, no, you'd have to fight for both of us. This is bigger than you and I, Mike. And they try and lighten them just a little bit. He says, this isn't a battle right now, so what do you need from me now? He says, 
first off, stay here while I throw off everything I've eaten for the last six years, and then get me a calming draft that could knock out a dragon. And I love Michael. He's like, um, well, we don't have any lemon or shortbread up here. Are you okay with chocolate creams? And he's like, why? <laughs> and he says, well, you get groggy if you take too much of that stuff on an empty stomach, and you're going to need to not be groggy for this meeting that's coming up. It's just another thing about how much they know about each other that he recognizes that. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's also a point that's come up elsewhere with Terry that we don't hear about, I think. I don't know if we hear about it in the main novel or not, but he has previously been addicted to calming potions, and he's been off them for most of a year or two now, but he's had to bring them back again just to get through some of this. I think it was when he was taking his owls or something, he first got moved on those and had to kick the habit. It's interesting to think that the wizards are as susceptible. Susceptible. Thank you. To potions as we are to different drugs. You know, you don't always think about them as getting addicted to things, but they do as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's just like they won't give Harry too much of the dreamless sleep because you can get addicted to it. Right. Think about it. If you're having nightmares every night, yet you have this potion that makes it so the nightmares go away without you having to deal with what's causing them. Mm -hmm. You take them every night, yeah. Except people have a reason they need to dream. If you cut off your ability to dream, you're going to mess yourself up. Right. Is that canon? Oh, I know. I'm, I believe that's canon. I'm not sure. It could be. I believe it is. I don't know. I've read too much fanfiction to remember much of canon. <laughs> yeah. Dreamless sleep is definitely the potion that comes up most often in fanfiction, and I think it may have been cast as addictive in fiction before in canon, but I think it's at least possible that it has been confirmed. I guess we'll have to look it up, and people commenting on this in the forum can tell us we're all wrong or find the reference that actually we're right. Yeah. There we go. So then it ends with another Latin saying, which translates to, the littlest things matter the most, brother. I will give so that you may act. And that's the end. And that's the end. And that's the end. <laughs> it does definitely sum up Michael and Terry's relationship that mm -hmm. say. Yeah, very much so. I liked both of these fics. They're very different, even while being similar. I like that the first one had a lot of fun in it. This one was much more serious, but it's two different sides of Michael and Terry's friendship. Mm -hmm. Right. I like that you get to explore it a little bit more rather than just getting the Gryffindor side of the story. Right. Because you get the Gryffindor side of the story in most stories you'll ever read about Harry Potter. Understandably enough, that's what we know from the source material. But. Right. But still, it's fun to see, oh wait, the Ravenclaws aren't just people that live in the library. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Hufflepuffs aren't just... <laughs> <laughs> the Hufflepuffs aren't just everyone else. They're real, true people. The Slytherins aren't just evil. Right. Canon is a children's book, and therefore the characters and the classifications are a lot more two-dimensional than adults perceive things as. So I think it is kind of refreshing to read a more mature fanfiction that there's more than one side to things, and yeah. it's not just this one perspective. Right. Canon isn't necessarily entirely two-dimensional. You do get to know a few little things about some of the characters. Like Ernie, for example, has a bit of a pompous streak, at least the times that Harry has run into him. 
but everybody is definitely a lot simpler. Basically, until the last book, we get a little bit more complexity with both Dumbledore and with Snape. But those are the only two characters who really have a lot of that contrast and conflict. Right, yes, but mm-hmm. we've got everything through Harry's point of view. It's colored by what he thinks. By everything thinks. Harry thinks, yeah. Right. And Scott, you remember that the sound book never happened in my head because no, that can't happen. Uh, of course, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, what never it's happened really in your head? It is, it's all really Yay, Melinda. My two favorite characters never died. I refuse to believe that Deathly Hallows was the real deal, so yeah. Well, I really liked these two. I liked the original one, but I like getting these little snapshots into the various aspects of each of the characters' lives. I really liked these two about Michael and Terry. And like Scott said, one was kind of funny, but the other was very serious. And it's really neat kind of getting to know them. And seeing them through the author's point of view rather than just whoever's. Right. Seeing them through somebody else's point of view rather than Harry's, because that's usually what we get. Well, Harry is very unlikely to have much of a point of view on either of them. I guess he would have known them in the DA. You could write a fic about him watching the various people learn things in the DA, but other than that, he doesn't have a lot of interaction with any of the other houses. Mm-hmm. Why would he? Your house is like your family on there, and honestly, they don't really go anywhere besides classes with everyone else. You're not expected to sit with anyone else your supper. You're not expected to study with anyone else. It's like the hat worn in the sixth book, I believe, that... Your house is like your family, but if you continue to divide the house, the fact that you can't venture outside of your family to find friendship, then you're royally screwed. So, did you have any thoughts on these two that we've covered? I am convinced that, I mean, I am a very busy person these days, but I have to find some way to read the main fic, because I really enjoyed these two little short snapshots. Oh, well, there you go. Last week we convinced Kayla to read them. Yeah, we're just going to get everybody to read here. Well, it truly is an awesome series, and I recommend that everyone find the time to read it. That wraps up our Beyondcast for tonight. Next week, we will be covering a fic called Up to Speed, which is kind of fun. shows James and Lily's relationship through when they were 11 to about 14 or so, I believe. It was interesting. We had to record it twice, I think, because the first one exploded. Actually, it's the one that the original sort of exploded, and we have Mike playing the part of Cody. Ah, yes. That'll be fun. (laughs) That sounds fun. It will be very, very fun. I'll be interested to see how that works out. (laughs) Hopefully, you will come back and enjoy that. And then the week after that, we'll be starting another series, which will go on for a while. So you can listen to those, have some consistency there. Yes. I believe right after this, if, of course, you haven't already heard it, there will be an interview with Fanfiction, who is, of course, the author of both of these fics and Dumbledore's Army in the Year of Darkness. But for now... This is Peoncast, and we will say goodnight. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, all. Hey, Peons, it's Scarlet. Just wanted to comment on the last Peoncast in which we all discussed Wisdom to Know the Difference by fanfiction. I enjoyed this one shot and the discussion. Y'all brought up points that, while reading the story, make me think, I must be too thick to think of these kinds of things. How do they do it? One example is that Seamus' rash behavior is similar to that of McGonagall 60-70 years ago. 
And think of it, it makes a lot of sense. And then it makes me think of Seamus being older, calmer, collected, and wearing tartan. Very McGonagall-like. Though, granted, I can't see him teaching Transfiguration, giving his less than aptitude for it in the main thick. I also thought that the perspective of McGonagall and Seamus was really interesting, because the DA in the Year of Darkness is in Neville Camp. This and the other one-shots that he's written flush out the Deathly Hallows Hogwarts further, considering that canon doesn't really give us much. I'm looking forward to the next one-shot and the discussion that'll come up with it. Bye! This is so awesome.